Hi, I'm your host, Kiefer, and before we begin today's episode, I wanted to make a quick announcement. The game we discussed today deals with upsetting subjects like racism, genocide, eugenics, and human experimentation, often with varying degrees of sensitivity. One specific instance of human experimentation depicted in the game is discussed with some detail in today's episode. This is referring to the Overlord DLC, a segment of the game that depicts the abuse of an autistic character in a manner that many players have deemed insensitive and stereotypical. When we discuss it in the show, I suggested that the developers should have put a warning in the recent re-release of the game. I think it would be unfair if I didn't hold my show and myself to the same standard. So in the middle of this episode, I mentioned the Overlord DLC by name before having a discussion about the ways the mission failed in its execution, as well as its depiction of ableism and autism. I would advise you skip forward about five minutes if you find that mission or references to that particular subject matter upsetting. I have a lot of fun making this show, and I want to make it fun for my audience too. I don't want to upset anybody in the process, which is why I'm including this disclaimer at the top of the episode, just in case. All right, I think that's it. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Commander Shepard, it's an honor to meet with you. I'm an ethics officer from the Citadel here to conduct a routine evaluation of you and your crew on the Normandy. I'm more than happy to cooperate, officer. Your inflection's a bit strange. Is this a side effect of your revival from the Lazarus Project? No, this is how I've always spoken. Video game voice acting can be a bit of a challenge, especially in games where you have hundreds of voice lines that you record in isolation. (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. Let me just pull up your file and we can get right down to business. Of course. I must say I admire your record, Commander. Not only are you the first human to become a Spectre, but you and your crew saved the Citadel from the Geth invasion. I thank you for your service. You saved the cultural hub for all intergalactic life. Thank you, Shepard. No need to thank me. I have an incredible crew. Yes, your crew. Let's take a look at your subordinates. The best of the best. Uh, it says that much of your crew is actually composed of members of the terrorist group Cerberus? In fact, it appears that the Normandy itself was provided by Cerberus. I also see that you consider Cerberus operatives Jacob Taylor and Miranda Lawson to be your trusted confidants? I trust Miranda Lawson with my life. Jacob's okay. I must say I find this relationship with Cerberus concerning, Commander. Cerberus is a human supremacist group. They've committed unspeakable acts against various alien races on the principle of what they describe as human ascension. Sometimes you have to ally yourself with an enemy to take on a bigger enemy, and the Reapers threaten us all. But surely you must consider your cooperation to be an indictment of your character, or perhaps a reflection of who you are? To reference a historical event on Earth, Operation Paperclip, my crew and I follow Paragon principles. I'm personally disgusted by the actions of Cerberus, and you'll see in my record that we've come to blows in the past. But our relationship is one out of convenience and nothing more. The Council may have granted me Spectre status, but in terms of resources, I've been given awfully little. Are you... Are you implying that your relationship with human supremacists has been more productive to your cause than your relationship with other alien races? Not at all. I have immense compassion for all alien species, even the Geth. In fact, you'll see that some of my closest subordinates are aliens. Yeah, let's review these crewmates. Okay, Tali Zora, a respectable and reputable Quarian. And then you have Samara, a Justicar, the most honorable profession of the Asari. But then there's Thane Krios, a Drell assassin. That's a pretty seedy profession, Commander. Thane's dying. He wants to do good while he still has time. What, so this is like a Make-A-Wish Foundation for murderers? Because I also see that Erdnot Rex, Garrus Vicarian, Zaid Masani, and Jack also have violent histories. This is a war. We need soldiers. And Zaid is DLC. That doesn't count. I'll grant you that, but you also have Grunt, the genetically engineered Krogan. Legally, he's a baby commander. A very strong baby, officer. You're justifying a lot of your choices, commander but I can't discipline you since you're a Spectre. Legally, you can do whatever you want. 
I'm not sure whose bright idea it was to create a state-empowered body of law enforcement with no rules or oversight, but I do want you to consider the weight of your decisions. Like I said, we're a Paragon group here. We believe in compassion. We look out for each other. You'll hear no complaints. We're all very close. The love of my life is part of this crew. <laughs> Excuse me? Niara Tasani. We're romantically involved. You can't do that. That's not okay. Why? Because you don't believe in interracial relationships? Now who's the bigot? No, I, I mean that you're her commanding officer. That's an abuse of power. You're her superior. That is a reductive view on relationships, officer. I consider us equals. No, I'm saying it's unethical for a commander to be sexually and romantically involved with his subordinates. I don't see the problem. I've slept with most of my crew at this point. What? Sure. Tali. Miranda. Samara. Garrus. Hell, even Edie gets it on. Edie? The ship's enhanced defense intelligence. She's great. People are fucking the ship? Sure, everybody's sleeping with everybody. This is unacceptable. You can't just leverage your status to sleep with whoever you want. I don't just sleep with my crew. We also have a journalist on board. We hook up all the time. You're... That's equally as bad, Commander. That's a conflict of interest. I think you're being closed-minded, officer. You need to get over your hangups about sex. From what I can see here, everybody refers to you as Commander or Shepard. Does anybody here even know your first name? Not really, but I'd love to know yours, officer. I, I can't tell because of your inflection. Are you flirting with me during an evaluation? What can I say? I put all my experience points into charisma. <laughs> uh, why is this working on me? We'll bang, okay? Hello and happy Pride Gamers! Welcome to Select and Start, the podcast where we talk about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm Kiefer, and like always, I'm excited to introduce this episode's guest. They are a Twitch streamer, a cosplayer, and of course someone I am happy to call my friend. Please welcome to the show, Maddie Kay. How are you doing today? Hey, Kiefer! I'm great! My hair is blue, my shepherd is red, and I'm here with my chaotic bisexual disasterness to talk about my favorite game. Awesome. Well, I'm super happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a bit of a disaster week for me, if I'm being honest with you, but not to get too personal on the pod, I'm feeling incredible today. But before today, I was having an awful week. My Gmail was hacked over Memorial Day break, and I was locked out of that account with all my recovery information changed, and I was devastated. I, I, I broke down. I spent days trying to get it back however I could doing whatever methods were available to me, talking to whoever I could. And the whole time, I'm also working my full-time job. And my Gmail was connected to a bunch of important stuff. It's connected to the, it has all my planning documents. It has uh, the scripts that I'm writing for upcoming videos that I'm putting on my YouTube channel. And on top of that, my YouTube channel itself was compromised because it's connected to that Gmail account. So it was just absolute hell and months of work and years of photos just completely gone but today is a beautiful day. Uh, the weather's great. I watched an incredible film last night, uh, a new favorite of mine, uh, the 1994 uh, Wong Kar-wai film, Chungking Express. And after days of banging my head against the wall, trying to talk to literally anybody at Google or YouTube about my problem, I finally got my account back this morning. So we're back in business. Blessed uh, day. Blessed day. Blessed day. Thank God. And I right before we had this call, I checked the mail and I got... I got a piece of mail that says that a job that I worked for a few years ago had a class action lawsuit against them and I am entitled to settlement money. So, Oh I don't my know. God, the dubs really are rolling in for you, man. It is a WWW, I'll tell you what. But <laughs> uh, no, that's that's enough about me. Uh, we have 
plenty of time to talk about video games. But before we do that, I want you to please introduce yourself to the listeners who don't have the pleasure of knowing you. Uh, what do you do and what do you like? Well, hi, uh, illustrious li- listeners of Select and Start. Uh, my name is Maddie <laughs> K or MK or Maddie or Mads or what have you. I have been a gamer for a long time. Um, I call myself a verber of nouns, and I really, really deeply enjoy putting my hands into the stuff of this thing that we call nerdiness and really getting my hands dirty. I have been cosplaying for at least a decade now and going to conventions for just as long. Um, I Twitch stream at uh, Hillbilly Eilish on Twitch. So. Right. You're yeah. going to have to clarify that spelling for, uh, I'll put it in the description. So yeah, it's hillbilly, hill as in, you know, the thing that you climb, Billy as in Billy Eilish, and then Eilish as in Eilish. So right. hillbilly Great. with an IE. Yes, it's very cute. And Maddie's uh, links to everything that uh, they want you to see, that, that'll all be <laughs> in the uh, description of this episode wherever you're listening to it. So please look out for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, we've gotten to know you a little bit. Thank you so much for talking about yourself. Uh, now that we've gotten to know you a little bit, it's time to shift into gamer mode. The video game community loves to gatekeep. So I have to ask a very important question for you. Mm-hmm. Number one, what kind of video games do you like, but also who or what got you into video games in the first place? Oh my goodness. Okay. So uh, first of all, GG Easy. Let's, let's fucking go. I love games. I've loved games for, I want to say the su- since the Super Nintendo, you know, because we gamers always track gaming by like the console that we first started on, which is getting less and less common these days as we all generally shift to like PC gaming or maybe not. But yeah, I think I, I think I first got started with games. I remember very, very vividly playing a Tomb Raider demo, I think on the PlayStation one. I think that's the first actual memory I have of playing video games is just running around as like pointy polygon Lara Croft trying not to die by wolves. But I, I played GoldenEye. My first PC game was actually the first Counter-Strike uh, because I had older stepbrothers who dragged me into gaming way before I should have been brought into gaming or at the right time. I think I'm a generally well-adjusted individual, all things considered. <laughs> but yeah, I I grew up playing the SNES and the N64. The cla- Nobody will ever know the like trauma and the horror of like the like controller scramble for especially for the n64 because we had like a fun like cable soup of all of the controllers that we used and everybody had their favorites and usually someone shared a favorite with someone else and it was always like especially when you're playing with siblings and stepbrothers it's always like a fist fight to the death for your favorite controller so that's how i grew up playing video games and then the thing that really got me into rpgs which is my favorite genre is i believe jack and daxter which is extremely funny. Why is that? Why do you think that's funny that that was the game that got you into RPGs? I mean, it is a platforming action game, but I'm, I'm a bit confused. Well, because I found a world that I really, really enjoyed and wanted to know more about with that game. And it wasn't an RPG, so it wasn't a game built for that. So it kind of like ignited in me this like hunger for story that I proceeded to go to various other games for like um, this is a complete sidestep in genre, but like mm. I also played the shit out of like animal crossing and harvest moon and all of those, you know, RPG simulations where you can meet people and build relationships with them over a course in a period of time. Right. So. I, I remember that particular era of video game having a lot of sort of RPG likes and that kind of visual style that Jack and Dexter had that first game, especially in yes. a lot of, JRPGs and a lot of Japanese developed games in general because the PlayStation 2 was kicking off and a lot of people were 
sort of imitating each other. You had Eco and Shadow mm-hmm. of the Colossus eventually that kind of has mm-hmm. a similar visual style with, you know, green open terrains and things like that. Final Fantasy X has that kind of architecture that mm-hmm. Jack and Daxter kind of share. So I, 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 I definitely see where you're coming from. That is sort of the best time to get into RPGs if you had to pick an era to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, then then as like as technology sort of like evolved and, you know, we went away from the platformers and like I watched this fascinating video on like how Crash Bandicoot changed the like video game industry just because of the way they started doing things. And like as the technology grew, you could see the game, the types of games like shift, but also like expand. Like there were so many other different ways to play games and, and write games and make games. And right. so it just became this like beautiful, like commodity like marketplace of stories Mm -hmm. and storytelling that you could kind of like literally choose your own adventure you could play whatever you want you could be any kind of hero you wanted to be yeah no i mean that's thank you for that very thoughtful answer (laughs) um so that's that's how you got into games uh what what Mm -hmm. have you been playing lately what has i mean know you are really into rpgs is there anything off the top of your head that you so i'm doing baby's first jrpg right now playing fire emblem three houses Really? And yes, and I am obsessed with it. I'm like 65 hours in and I'm not even to the halfway point of the game yet. Just because I keep running around like the marketplace panicking, like, do I have this? Do I have enough of that? Do I need to get more of this? And I actually, uh, I went to a convention recently and I ran into a group of Fire Emblem cosplayers who were there doing like a mashup group. I was like, this is so weird. I just got this game for my birthday and I was going to open it like the second that I got home from this convention. And they were like, Oh my god, you have to play it with us. Come in, like we'll we'll put you in our DM, like we'll tell you everything, like and it's been really really fun like ex- engaging in a new community in a genre of game that I honestly don't know a lot about oh. and having that new fun experience. So you are more of a western RPG action RPG person and not a yeah. not a JRPG person. Yes, not for lack not for lack of like interest, just generally like especially being um a girl in gaming, there's a lot of like stuff that I didn't go out on a limb and try just because it was easier to play the things that I knew I liked or like the, the stories that I was familiar with than like take a risk on an online game and, you know, get bullied out of the lobby or whatever. So that kind of, that kind of shaped my gaming habits in a way that like, I'm only just now having the opportunities to like step out more and try more things. And, you know, there's also like a lot of like neurodivergence that goes in with that and like, Mm -hmm. you know, managing that sort of expectation as well. But I'm having a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad you're having fun. I've never played Three Houses because I talked about this with Will on the the Fallout mm-hmm. um, episode. RPGs take a lot long time to play. Persona Five Golden I have on my shelf. Three Houses I actually have on my shelf. I paid money for that game. I bought <laughs> you it on still sale. Haven't played it yet? Yeah, I understand. On the rare Nintendo sale where it was actually forty dollars, and it's mm-hmm. I know it's going to be hundreds of hours of gameplay, but I am over one hundred hours into Elden Ring right now, and <laughs> I am so ready to play a short game again. I'm taking my time with Elden Ring because I love it. And it's one of my favorite games ever. And I can say that uh, as I'm winding down finally. Uh, it's funny, actually. My uh, I play a lot of League of Legends as well. Mm-hmm. And that's, I guess, the other game that I'm whole hog into right now. Um, and I don't think I'll ever not be whole hog into it anytime soon. But my duo that I play with, she, when Elden Ring came out, she was like, you're not going to see me for like a few <laughs> months. So just accept it. I was like, okay. And I believe she's already beat it three different times. And she keeps playing to try for a different ending. And, you know, I don't I don't play any FromSoft games like like much like you, not for lack of interest, but just for lack of time. I know myself well enough 
to know that if I tried to get into something like that, I would hyperfixate in a very bad way and I would right. not do the things that I need to do. <laughs> no, I mean, that's another factor in terms of why yeah. I'm taking so long to beat this game. I know a few people who have beaten it at under 100 hours, but I'm very much like, I want to get as much out of this first experience as possible. I want to have it all. I want to be able to discover. I do this with every game. I Not to jump ahead, but I plan mm-hmm. every single Mass Effect game because I like to do the little exploration things. And even though the navigation in that first Mass Effect game <laughs> is notoriously janky, I power through it. because A lot of I, things in that first game are notoriously janky. <laughs> Mass Effect 1 is a janky game. but It is, and we love um, it. We stand. But it, it has must be said. I don't know how much fun I'm having, but I'm going to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> with Elden Ring, it's like almost every single square foot I am completely transfixed by and this is the most involved i've ever been in a game and i feel bad for the listeners who are just like this guy can't just fucking stop talking about elden ring and i'm just like play it it's great but yeah let's talk about western rpgs then what are the western rpgs besides the one that we're talking about today that you're familiar with what would you consider your favorites uh which ones are you looking forward to trying just so i can get a you know more specific gauge as to what you what you enjoy playing yeah so i would say the most important rpgs to me for various reasons would be like definitely the dishonored series i'm a huge fan of that whole like feel and like like you said it is it is such a very specifically western game because it pulls from very specific western influences but it remixes them in a very interesting and fascinating way. And in a way that like it feels like it builds a new world. And um, Dragon Age also, because it's just like Mass Effect, but not in space. Bioshock Infinite in particular was a really beautiful cinematic experience, much like the re-release of God of War. And I would say my other big, big RPG hit is Deus Ex Human Revolution and uh, Mankind Divided that followed up in a very similar vein and I was very satisfied by. But like Human Revolution... It was like Mass Effect 2 and Human Revolution for me for like a very, very, very long time. Those two came, those two games came out relatively around the same time. Did you get to play those games live or did you sort of stumble into them? I played pretty much everything live. Dragon Age, Bioshock, I think I played maybe a year after it came out. Human Revolution, I played in real time. Mankind Divided, I played in real time. Both, Dino- both Dishonored, I played in real time. And all of the Jack and Dexter games, I played in real time. Just going to harp on that again, because <laughs> Jack 2 and Jack 3 are also very, very good. They're still platform action platformers, but like they, they have that RPG light sort of vibe of like this very beautiful story that you're telling. Yeah. Jack and Daxter is just a really interesting uh, series because you could see how the sensibilities of gaming changed around between releases. <laughs> uh, you know, the original one, we had just transitioned into twin stick gaming and we were trying out platforming, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, going back to Eco and then going into the GameCube era of Super Mario Sunshine. And then it's late in 2001, <laughs> uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 comes out and it just completely changes the entire landscape of video gaming. Everyone's like, we need open world games and we need hyper violence now yeah. because even though we might be on the news constantly... Uh, we need to make them because they will make a lot of money. So yeah, suddenly, we need to make as much money as possible off of this concept before it's regulated and banned away, even though it never was. So we need Jack to say fuck immediately and <laughs> hold a gun. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, the game was better for it, in my opinion. Like it truly was. He's a really deeply unlikable hero, and he's supposed to be because of that like tragic fall and then rise again. I, I fucking love the Jack and Daxter it's series. So it's just so it's just so insane that it's like. <laughs> I played Jack one a million times. And then my brother, very se- my older brother, very seriously said to me, you can't play Jack two. And I'm like, what? Why? What happened? He's like, did, did something happen to him? And he's like, kind of. He, yeah. <laughs> he, 
he says fuck now and you can't <laughs> he says words he talks what yeah <laughs> he's, i he's mean like I mean, I just think that if you're, like, tortured to near insanity in, like, a paramilitary, like, eugenic experiment, like, I think you deserve to say fucking hold a gun. But that's just me. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm slightly exaggerating if you have never played the Jack games. Like, he doesn't say fuck exactly. But you no, know he doesn't. His first spoken word after being completely silent for the entire first game. <laughs> you go through the opening cutscene and it's like, let's pull him out of this quirky world and take him into this dystopian, horrific world where the fascists have taken over he's tortured in like this very of the times post 9-11 just prison and he's just injected with dark evil so he becomes like a semi-mutant creature (laughs) he's visibly older and rugged and then he's discovered by i think daxter and he's Mm -hmm. like are you okay man he's like i'm gonna kill Kill (laughs) (laughs) and i I finally came around to these games when i was a teenager and even then i was like what you're just like what is happening this is not the jack this is not my beautiful jack this is not my beautiful jackster what is going on this is not my beautiful wife here is this beautiful story jack gets zapped into an alternate reality where everything is terrible and now he's mad about it and he's gonna make it everyone's problem and that's the second game jack is back and he's pissed Like, even the name of the game, like, Jack and Daxter is just a very, oh, you know, cute, sweet mm-hmm. title. And then, like, Rush you go and in. Plank, yeah. Jack 2. And it's like, <laughs> shit, he's got a gun. What the fuck? <laughs> he punches people and, and takes away their speeder bikes. It's great. Uh, so that's Jack and Daxter. That's the end of our episode today. We're done. Goodbye. No. Um, so, yeah, you said that you like the uh, the Dragon Age games. You like oh, the Mass Effect yeah. series. So, Bioware RPGs in general seem to be your, your scene. I mean, like, I played all of them. Like, I played, like, Assassin's Creed. Like, my, my, me and Assassin's Creed are beefing super hard because I was one of the few, like, notable fans of the present day storyline and characters. In the third game, they just kind of kill everybody and then no longer pursue that line. Yeah. So, so like, I, I've been, I've had a very contentious relationship with, with them ever since, but there have been some really, really good games, like Odyssey, particularly. And I know some people who really, really hate Origins, and I know some people who really, really stand for Origins. So I think it's a very divisive game. And I haven't played Valhalla yet because I don't have a PS5 and I have yet to buy it on PC. So, yeah, that's so strange because Assassin's Creed is generally that series that I have been an outside observer of. Mm hmm. I kind of missed the boat on it a little bit because I think the time when like everyone was just like all over the series was two brotherhood, th- yeah. those, those specific games. Brotherhood and is still one of my favorite games like ever. I wasn't just completely watching this discourse and then just year after year, people just being like, this game sucks. And then this game sucks. And oh man, black flag. That one's a cool one. Pirates. Fuck. Yeah. And then this game sucks. This game sucks. <laughs> yeah. just That being the prevailing opinion on Mm -hmm. gaming communities until the Odyssey shift comes in. And I think Mm -hmm. that seems to be like a soft reboot of the the formula from what I understand. As it should be, because I think much like, you know, Star Wars and much like other things like EA went through this moment where they were like, we have to do a blockbuster every for all of our major franchises every year. And with Assassin's Creed, you can really see how that like really bit them in the ass because with the with the game dev crunch and with like the novelty that you lose by having, oh, we're getting another Assassin's Creed game this year. How is it going to be different than the last one? The answer is not that different because we don't have, give the technology enough time to like change and the the writers enough time to like develop a story that deserves to be told of its own merit as opposed to serve like a bottom line profit margin. You know what I mean? No, precisely. Instead of having 
something be refined and a better version always coming out the next year based on the feedback of the players of the game and just seeing like what could we have done better now that we have the benefit of hindsight it was just like oh well this team's working on this game so we don't really have to worry about that for another two years so everything felt behind even though everything was constantly coming out we i think the world is better off without getting an annual release every single year for every single franchise ever Uh, games are just becoming way too massive and complex for that but i really hope that this is just also signaling a change in our labor sensibilities so that people can actually make games out of a passion for them and get the pay that they need and the time and resources they need to develop a great game rather than just a a mediocre to okay game every year or so. No design philosophy has been worse for games than these annual releases because we are getting diminishing returns more and more often. I would say annual releases and publishers refusal to push back games Mm -hmm. um, are the two big problems in the in the gaming industry from like a manufacturer development standpoint. Yeah, that's a great point. What about upcoming games? So (laughs) talking about the future of games and how everything needs to change. (laughs) Are there any games that you're looking forward to playing or any updates to any current games that you're playing that you're looking forward to? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm really excited about the new Dragon Age game that just announced. Well, it's been announced for the past literally five years, but they finally just announced the name of it, which is going to be Dragon Age Dreadwolf. And they announced it on the second day of Pride Month. And I believe the the photo that they used was bisexual lighting only, um, which I deeply appreciated. So I'm really looking forward to that when it comes out in another five years. And <laughs> besides that, um, with, I'm having such a good time with Fire Emblem Three Houses that uh, I believe the next game coming out is Fire Emblem's Warriors Three Hopes, which is like, it, like so there's a time skip in Three Houses. And I think the game that's happening is taking place in the middle of that time skip. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know. I haven't finished my first playthrough yet. But I'm really excited because even though there are like four or five different routes and storylines in this game, I'm going to play them all and I'm already excited to know that there's more coming out. But in terms of like overall gaming industry, I don't know. I've been kind of sleeping on stuff because I try watching all of the like Nintendo Directs and like the E3s and the PAXs. But like ultimately, I'm just there to like laugh at things. Oh, I'm really excited <laughs> about the Gollum game. What really? the fuck you- is that? That's yeah. going to be nuts. <laughs> Did you see the trailer for that when it was like during the Game Awards? Yeah, like what? Like what the actual hell? <laughs> like I don't know if I sincerely want to play it or if it's just like deep, deep root ingrained irony that makes me want to play it. Because I know I can't tell anymore. I don't know if I'm too online and that's why I want to watch it, or if it's because I'm actually or I play it, or if I'm actually going to play it and enjoy it. I think I'm going to actually play it and enjoy it, but I think it is rooted in a place of irony. I think what it why I want to play it is because it kind of goes back to the early 2000s era of gaming when it was much easier to develop games and they were just shitting them out with whatever <laughs> property was popular at the time. Yeah. So it's just kind of like game you can't do that with video games anymore. You can't release a game on the PlayStation 5 easily with decent graphics and a decent scale and scope with it. So it's kind of like how confident are they in this product that a Gollum game is coming out and it's just about Gollum. I, it's I not mean, a Game I Boy they, game. I think like considering what's his name? Gollum's actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andy Serkis like thoroughly like invented like a whole genre of like just a little guy being weird. Yeah. Because he was so good at his job. I think this will have no problem selling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's not, I, I, don't, I don't think it's like a Morbius situation where people just straight up are just being ironic about it. I do think that there is an attachment to the Lord of the Rings that would make people want to play it. But I'm just and trying especially to- especially Gollum. Like he really is like, a lot of people's like first like just a weird little guy character. 
I think it'll be really good. Really, I, truly. I just, I, I want to see what it is. I want to see like how they are planning on implementing this because, you know, they had the shadow of Mordor games and those are quite good, but they are very commercial games. They're, they're action RPGs, yes. uh, open world action RPGs set in the Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. And they do have that mature sense to them. This is not that. This is not, I am engaging in a power fantasy and leveling up my character and doing all sorts of sick, you know, kill cam shots or something. <laughs> like There's no nemesis system with Gollum. So it's kind of right. like, what are you putting on the table here? Oh my God. I don't know. I just, I just want to have a weird, weird time. They're also, I do want to say this now that you've reminded me, Shadow of Mordor and uh, Shadows of Middle Earth are two games that I really want to play and have always really wanted to play. And this is like true for like Jedi Fallen Order and like a lot of other like games that I would have played otherwise. Um, Mm -hmm. I started Twitch streaming about a year and a half ago. I have like an Excel sheet of all of the games that I want to play for the first time on stream. And so there's a lot of games that I've been holding myself back from so I could experience it in like a content form, (laughs) I guess. I don't know. A lot of them are like games that my friends have been wanting to watch me play and Mm -hmm. that's the only way they can do it. Yeah, pre-pandemic, there were a lot of games that my friends and I would consume with each other. Mm-hmm. So we would alternate playing a single-player campaign together. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, that's how we played a lot of games together, just because it was a great social activity and we were all experiencing to get together. And doing that, rather than playing alone, it enhances the experience, even if you aren't strictly in control of it the entire time. Yes, absolutely. Um, but in the case of, you know, with the pandemic and everything, you see why streaming becomes so popular, because that shared experience... Even in an interactive medium, there's still something to it. The enthusiasm of watching someone play something you love and getting to see that live without having to be next to them. It, it's its significant. It's, it's great. It's super fun. And especially with my like long distance friends who were already streamers or who also started streaming during the pandemic, it was cool to be able to spend time with them in that manner in a way that was like safe and, you know, non-vectorable or whatever. So yeah. <laughs> Are you streaming three houses or do you stream different kinds of games that are? Um, I stream different kinds of games. Right now I'm actually working through, I say right now, I've been on like a slight hiatus for the past couple of week, couple of months while I like try and get my like work-life balance back in order because it's kind of a mess right now. Right. But um, I'm actually working through the Mass Effect Legendary Edition. Presently. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I do league streams. There's a there's a game mode called ARAM where it's it's kind of like Overwatch. Uh, what is the, What was that crazy overpowered mode? called i don't remember, I remember but like I, it, mainly, I just mainly played competitive normal yeah. overwatch yeah so like there's like a truncated like smaller map version of the game where just you're there just really to have fun and not really like actually try in like a strategy game mm-hmm. um and i play a lot of that on stream too just hanging out with my friends and doing like meme builds and you know not actually trying to win at the game just have, right. trying to have fun with the game but yeah the only reason that i don't stream switch games i would probably be streaming this um, is because uh, there's some extra technology that goes into hooking that up, and I am too lazy to open my computer and do it. So right, you said you're primarily a PC gamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but I do. I really. I have an OLED Switch. I have a PS4, an Xbox One, an OLED Switch. My PC, obviously, and I'm sure I still have like some older consoles in storage somewhere. I know I have a GameCube and an N64. So I've got lots of variety. Right, right on. I can understand why you wouldn't want to stream a, a Three Houses type game in the first place, because like you said, those campaigns are hundreds of hours long. And welcome to JRPGs. I, those, <laughs> yeah, those were the you. RPGs I first played because my older brother sort of leaned toward that sensibility. Uh, mm-hmm. At the time, you know, it's a lot of bang for your buck. And I think that there's more 
they're a bit weirder, I think. Uh, Final Fantasy, great series. The Dragon Quest games I played are really good. Oh, so good. I love Final Fantasy. I was like, I have the, such a specific memory of like going to like Final Fantasy fan sites in like mm-hmm. the, the mid aughts with where like you had those like MIDI MP3 players built into the site. <laughs> It would always be like like simple and clean and sanctuary, like always, <laughs> and video game anime adjacent songs that everybody was obsessed with and would and were like MySpace songs at one point. You know what I mean? Right. And I was uh, a I was a Pokemon kid, so mm-hmm. the, 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 those those kind of JRPGs and they're turn based. So as a kid, you're very you're able to get the the rudimentary video game experience without having to worry about things like camera angles in these you know primitive early 3D games. Because I've experienced this ha- having a partner who is not as familiar with the the language and interactive part of video games as me. Twin mm-hmm. stick gaming is hard. If you have more than one analog stick that you're controlling, you have to control the camera and the movement of your character at the same time. You don't have to worry about that in Pokemon, uh, in the older Pokemon games, because it's just two buttons and you take turns hitting the guy. <laughs> yeah, God. I love red and blue and gold and silver and yellow like so much. Yeah, so, they're- so much. They're great first video games to play just because they're so simple. And I remember switching from the turn-based JRPG formula in those, you know, Final Fantasy games and Pokemon and then seeing fucking Kingdom Hearts come out, right? And Oh my I, god, Kingdom Hearts. These, this is stuff my older brothers are playing and then I'm watching this and it's like, I'm a kid. I'm six years old and I'm like, Goofy? Is that Goofy? What the? <laughs> yeah. You see Goofy and Donald, and the first time I see them play it, they're on the Tarzan world. And I'm just like, I'm like squeezing, my, I'm going crazy about this. And it's like, you can't do that to a six year old who is going to find out in 19 years that he has extreme ADHD because he is going to never be normal again mm-hmm. after seeing something like that. And it is, it stuck with me. I am very fond of the Kingdom Hearts series, even though I acknowledge that they are rife with problems and that yes. they 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 hey, do not. Make I'm a sense. Kingdom Hearts defender right next to you. Okay, I had I had Chain of Memories on my Game Boy Advance, and I took that shit with me everywhere, <laughs> like everywhere. <laughs> I think that the that those games are kind of responsible for the way people are about media today to a certain extent, because obviously, like that core concept of what Kingdom Hearts is is kind of what the Marvel formula is now, and to Absolutely. an extent, the Star Wars, the glupshitoism of Star Wars with the with the television everything is the multiverse now and kingdom hearts was a very early adopter of mainstreaming that idea in terms of making it a an action rpg with a very heavy you know focus on violence and you know making things look cool in that early 2000s way and especially in like the phase two and phase three of marvel like having these like these different groups of people who were from very different genres of superhero content like interacting with each other it really does have that that vibe of like here's goofy hanging out with Sora. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then you go into a, like, a, you go from like a place where violence would make sense, like uh Hercules or Tarzan. And then you go to <laughs> Alice in Wonderland and then it's or the, the little mermaid. And it's kind of still keeping that vibe going. And it's that, that would be after nine 11, another brain breaker for the American psyche, just seeing that happen to their beloved Disney characters and seeing that be a possibility with, Crossing over with Final Fantasy characters, by the way, you didn't mention that part. So Cloud oh, yeah, Strife absolutely. there, and, uh, Squall, Leonhart, and all that stuff, and having crack ships with these fake made-up characters and these Final Fantasy characters, and also Disney characters all God. intersecting with each other. So it's hey, Kiefer, mm-hmm. they're all fake and made up. Every they're single one and, of them. <laughs> I know the new characters, though. It's kind of like I knew what you meant. Yeah. 
Donald Duck is real and he is my friend. Uh, Donald Duck is real and I will swing on sight. You would, you would, you do. <laughs> I would swing on Donald Duck. Absolutely. <laughs> if I saw Donald Duck in real life, I'd hit him with hammers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, true. that is kind of the plot of Kingdom Hearts when you think about it. Oh my god. Yeah. So this true. is our episode about Kingdom Hearts. I can't wait for someone <laughs> to actually like come on and be like, that's the game I want to talk about because yeah. I have notes, buddy. I have notes. Good. Let's go. <laughs> so those are the games you like. Those are the games that you enjoy. You enjoy streaming video games as well. You say action RPGs are where it's at for you, and I see that you are wearing your Normandy shirt now. You have the Commander Shepard helmet right there behind you on the yes. uh, on the camera feed. Let's talk about the title of today's episode, Mass Effect 2 with Maddie. Yes, let's do it. So Mass Effect 2, this is the part of the show where I'm going to yell a bunch of game companies at you and a bunch of game titles, and hopefully you keep up with me. Mass Effect 2 was developed by BioWare. BioWare is a developer of a lot of Western action RPGs. Like you said, uh, Maddie, they developed the Dragon Age series, the first Knights of the Old Republic game, Neverwinter Nights, Baldur's Gate, and Jade Empire. These are all turn of the millennium action RPGs with overlapping playstyles with some distinctions with aesthetics. This Mass Effect trilogy was all directed by Casey Hudson, who was also the director for games like Baldur's Gate 2, uh, Knights of the Old Republic 1, Neverwinter Nights, and Jade Empire, the games I just described now. The same director for those games also came on and directed the the Mass Effect trilogy, which took a less turn-based approach to combat and made it a lot more action-oriented. Mass Effect 2, it was originally released in January of 2010 on PC and Xbox 360 before coming to PlayStation 3 on January of 2011. Other games released in 2010 include Super Mario Galaxy 2, Red Dead Redemption, StarCraft 2, Rock Band 3, God of War 3, Halo Reach, Xenoblade Chronicles for you JRPG fans out there, Alan Wake, Limbo, Super Meat Boy, and for those of you who have been keeping up with the show, Fallout New Vegas, which we covered in a previous episode. Real quick here, Maddie, are you familiar with any of these games or did you ever get to play them live as they were coming out? Um, I played some of Baldur's Gate. I did play Neverwinter Nights. Um, I played KOTOR and mm-hmm. all of that. And I played SWOTOR. Yeah, so I played some of them, not all of them, I would do admit. And I did play, except for Dragon Age Origins, which I did play pretty early on, but not right when it dropped. I played every Dragon Age game upon release and DLCs and all of that. And if you ever want me back for a Dragon Age Inquisition episode, I'm fucking there but yeah no so like i played some of them i i missed the boat on some of them as well just because either they weren't marketed well to me they my local secondhand game shop didn't have them or like you know various other reasons so i guess you're gonna you're gonna be the resident bioware expert today (laughs) because i've played the mass effect trilogy and Mm -hmm. i've also played kotor kotor is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite games ever Yes, uh, but I never played the Jade Empire, Neverwinter Nights, uh, Baldur's Gate series. I know nothing about Dragon Age. I don't think I've actually ever seen gameplay of any of these non-sci-fi iterations on the Bioware formula. Mass Effect 2 is a sci-fi third-person action RPG. Dialogue and morality are a major fixture of this franchise. Most of Shepard's dialogue is chosen by the player via a radial command menu, uh, where they can choose to speak with empathy, which is known in the game as going paragon. You could speak with hostility which is Renegade, or you can just be completely neutral, just say everything matter-of-factly. 
but there's no real benefit to doing that. Most of your actions, you're going to want to pick Paragon or Renegade so you can get bonuses to level or charisma or intimidation. This is a fixture in most Bioware games, as I understand it, especially so in Knights of the Old Republic, where <laughs> everything is also in that Sith and Jedi binary of good or evil. Mm-hmm. As for the plot, I won't go into like the greater details of Mass Effect lore. Some of it's going to come up over this discussion. If you're not really familiar with the the vibe of the series, it is very sci-fi, very space marine, but it does have a visual language of its own. And it is actually very impressive that this game was able to create a sci-fi series that is very clearly derivative, but also original and synthesizes something out of it that does feel refreshing. That is something that I think Bioware is really, really, really good at. It. They do the same thing with Dragon Age. They take a lot of those like stereotypical, like low and high fantasy tropes that we were previously exposed to in like Dungeons and Dragons and Lord of the Rings, but they like subvert expectations in a very fun way. Right. In a way that actually reveals more about our own expectations as a society and our own like biases towards like the genre staples and such in a way that I think is super, super fascinating. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Mm-hmm. Generally, this series takes place, this trilogy specifically, takes place in the 2180s where Earth has discovered the existence of alien life and over the past few decades have been trying to position themselves as equals among the established alien races. So this trilogy follows the exploits of Commander Shepard, your player character. Uh, you create this character, you can customize their appearance. You can designate them as either male or female. You can choose their backstory prior to the events of the game, and you can assign their class, which determines what abilities, powers, and weapon proficiencies are. Vanguard is the best route IMO. A lot of people pick soldier, and I understand that because it is very, you're leaning into the military aesthetic of it, but it is a kind of boring way to play these games. And I think that's why people sort of bounce off the series and find them to be unengaging on a combat level. Yeah, so my hot take is that Soldier is actually a good class to play the first game with. I always go Infiltrator, especially because the 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 HUD and like the the game mechanics of the first game are so wonky. Like True. I was actually so proud of every headshot that I could get as a sniper. <laughs> like I was like, I'm so good at games, blah blah blah. <laughs> and then I started playing Halo and I was like, no, I'm like, okay. I'm not I'm not great. I'm not I'm not like competitive level, but I'm I can get my fair share of headshots. That being said, I do think Soldier is a good way to play the first game because it really does let you play with every weapons class. And I think the squad is balanced in a way that like you can use anybody's abilities at any time. So it doesn't necessarily like infra lock you. But because of the plot of this game, Mm -hmm. I think actually it's a better choice to go Vanguard or Infiltrator once the thing happens and you reclass. They, I think they both have the most flavor. That's another example of how game technology changed between the release of the first game and the second game. The second game made the classes like more distinctive in a way that was really cool and awesome. Like, right. for example, Vanguards, um, you have this like cool biotic punch. Like, it's literally a magic, a space magic punch. And then, but Infiltrators also, you have a tactical cloak, which makes you invisible. Those are my favorite too, obviously, because they're the best, obviously. Right. And if you disagree, you're wrong. And I'm always right. So there you go. So. You, you you hit a good point here. Uh, you are you very into the emergent gameplay part of action RPGs. So mm-hmm. you're creating an actual narrative reason for why Shepard would go from a typical soldier class to a vanguard into the next game. Because something I forgot to mention, you can import your character created Shepard between games, almost like and a Pokemon. All of the choices your Shepard makes, and it, yeah. it, it it imprints on the character map and the like the plot map of Mass Effect. And the same thing happens with Dragon Age. It's it's a very Bioware thing to do. Yeah, there's not a canonical route between games. Most of your story decisions that you made from game one over to game two 
they can carry over if you played the first game. So mm-hmm. if a squad mate of yours dies in the first game, they're not going to pop up again in the second game. Like, hello, how are you doing? If you like the Veermeyer mission, you have to choose between Ashley or Caden. And if mm-hmm. you chose to save one of them, they are going to appear in the next game. The one that died is never going to come up again. And they're going to have a gravestone and, and <laughs> memoriam. Uh, it's and, so sad, but it's so funny. Like, yeah, it sucks, <laughs> but you know, whatever, you know, or not Rex. He is a huge, he's one of my favorite characters, but he can just straight up die in the first game and then never come up again. That I think places like an impetus and like a duty for you as a player character throughout the series to get the most content that you can and like, you know, not just kill people willy nilly. There are actual consequences if you do. And if you only play it once and you make those choices, you're never going to be able to see all of the other cool content that you could have had in the other games. Yeah, if you are going to approach these games, number one, play the legendary editions that Maddie is currently playing through on Mm -hmm. stream right now. There are quality of life improvements to one that make it a lot more playable. It is still janky. It's still not great. And there's just like some parts of it that are, they're just not great. And I would just- They were, imagine- they were borderline unplayable when it dropped. <laughs> and they've only aged worse with time. And so the Legendary does well to address and fix a lot of that. Like I say Coder is one of my favorite games, but it is janky as hell. And it is, if you're not <laughs> familiar with the D20 combat system of D&D- you're going to have a bad time because the game does not explain that concept to you. You are just going to not, why aren't my hits connecting? Why, why, why does this, why does this suck? And it's like, well, (laughs) you were supposed to read a manual, I guess. Right. They have wikis now and like, and like IGN articles on how to min max everything. So. Yeah. I min maxed on my most recent playthrough of coder because I was old enough to know what I was doing this time. And it is a (laughs) significantly different experience when I was a young teen coming into this game that was already kind of old, winging it, not understanding that this is, oh, this is like Morrowind, Elder Scrolls 3. Remember games before Skyrim, guys? Oh my God. Remember Skyrim? Remember when that was a game? It's still a game. Are you kidding me? People still play the hell out of Skyrim. (laughs) I know. I just want the next entry. I'm putting my hand on the glass window of Elder Scrolls going, please. There was a stretch of video game history where everything was only Skyrim, so hard to forget. Yeah. Look, all right. So Mass Effect. So we went from Mass Effect to Coder to Sky. We're fucked up people. Oh, I mean, you don't have to say it like that. It's true, but you shouldn't say it. (laughs) You can tell when ADHD people have a podcast because they talk like this. Yes, it's true. All of it. All right. Mass Effect 2. Uh, Yes. Shepard is an elite human soldier. Uh, the first to be given the rank of Spectre, which gives them carte blanche to handle their missions however they see fit without a regard for local or intergalactic laws. It's gross, but also a convenient way for you to factor in your moral alignment and your actions without having to think about things like prison in the back of your mind. <laughs> Super galactic space cop. Yeah. The ultimate cop. You, yeah. <laughs> you know how cops don't have any rules or oversight? How about you have less rules and less oversight and you are basically stronger than the Supreme Court? Yeah, <laughs> that's Mass Effect for you right there. Yeah. Uh, In the first Mass Effect game, you can choose to let their Supreme Court equivalent die. <laughs> you can just decide that. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, cool. We replace people, we replace them with people who like you more. Yeah. Well, shortly after the events of the first game, where Shepard saved the Citadel from an invasion of synthetic aliens known as the Geth, Shepard and the crew of the Normandy are attacked by a new alien threat, the Collectors. Dun dun! An enigmatic alien race under the control of the big existential threat in the series, the genocidal mind-controlling Reapers. Shepard sacrifices himself to save the members of the crew that matter to us and dies of asphyxiation in the vacuum of space. 
roll credits. But no, it actually isn't roll credits because these are the first minutes of the game. Isn't that insane? Like, yeah. I think about the first time I played Mass Effect 2 and like the, the, the like terror that I felt and like the horror and then mm-hmm. and like the grief, like, ugh, I'll like never shall we see it's like again. Like that mm-hmm. was so good. That was peak. That was peak Mass Effect storytelling, dude. Yeah. And Mass Effect was already big, you know, but it wasn't AAA. Like I really think Mass Effect 2 made it AAA. And I think it's because of like the emotional resonance that the moment where Shepard dies mm-hmm. in the first 10 minutes of the game I think that is really what catapulted it to like AAA status, in my opinion. And I'm also going to be mad forever that the collector's edition of the game was was not called the collector edition, and I'll be mad about it forever. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, puns, you know, <laughs> puns, puns drive sales. But yeah, that, that is a good point about the AAA status. The, the jankiness of the first Mass Effect game is partially because it is a dry run. This is kind of a pilot game where. If you like this, uh, support it financially, and then you can get more of this in the future. So and it'll be better. <laughs> it is the AAAification of Mass Effect 2 cannot be overstated. It is tremendous quality of life improvements uh, and really paring down the RPG aspects of it, which some people argue is for the worse. Some would argue it's for the better. We'll get to that in a minute when we talk about the, the gameplay bits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even though Mass Effect 1 to me has the best general story and vibes, Two is a lot more focused and streamlined. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think minute to minute gameplay wise, Mass Effect 2 is the better game. But again, we'll get back to that. Maddie, you said that you wanted to do a, a little segment for us on the show. Do you want to talk me through it and, and help me figure out what we're going to do here? I want to talk about Mass Effect 2 being a game that kills its main character in the first 10 minutes of the game. I wanted to talk about some other games that also kill the main character very early because I think it's a fun look at like the different ways you can tell stories and what thing that accomplishes. Oh, so you're you're trying to give us other examples of video games that sort of kill off your player character and you have to... And how they react to that and yeah, like gameplay and narrative. Exactly. Level. Like gotcha. whether or not it's for a reason or whatever. Okay, let's go for it. Yeah. So some of them I will talk about specific characters and some of them I won't. But um the big one obviously is Chrono Trigger, which mm. I have not played, but I know a lot about as it's one of the most important games in game history. Games Radar did a certain like best games of all time and Chrono Trigger was number three. Like I said, I haven't even played it and I know how important it is as an RPG. JRPG guy here. Hi. Chrono Trigger is one of my favorite games ever. Continue. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they Thanos snap Chrono like halfway through the game. And Mm -hmm. I know that you can do like an in-game thing to bring them back, but it's super optional, which I think is super metal. And then obviously Telltale Game of Thrones, like the TV show, in which they kill them, your main character, your hero figure, uh, in the first season, staying true to its source material immediately kills the the po- point of view character. Wow, um, I didn't know that. Yeah, Detroit Becoming Human has a mechanic where if you constantly fail the QTE in one of the early chapters, that character just dies. Then Dead Space Extraction. Um, for Dead Space Extraction, you play as a miner who goes crazy and starts hallucinating necromorphs and then begins shooting all of the necromorphs that aren't there then he gets shot by a detective named mcneil who you then play as the main character for the rest of the game and then uh, fatal frame mask of the lunar eclipse is similar um it borrows a traditional horror movie opening where you explore a haunted house as a girl named madoka sukimori and then she's killed by ghosts and then Mm -hmm. you become her best friend who goes to the house that she died to look for her because she's missing and then also shout out to fire emblem genealogy the holy war 
which is not only a wild ass name, but also a wild ass story. Welcome to JRPGs. Um, yeah. <laughs> in which you spend the first half of the game playing as a prince named Sigurd, who then dies. And then the mm-hmm. story skips to his 15 year old son, 15 years to his son, Selif, for like reasons and like generational storytelling, I guess. Um, it's one of the first Fire Emblem games. So I'm not entirely sure how many have time skips. But I think this was maybe the first or one of the first, which is relevant because I'm playing Three Houses right now and I'm I'm right at the time skip and I'm living in fear of it because I know it's coming. And um, <laughs> for for reasons that I won't get into, um, I got to make sure I have all of my I's dotted and my T's squared before that happens. Yeah, so I never played Call of Duty, but my brother, I remember when this happened because my brother was pissed off about it. Uh, <laughs> Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. Uh, I guess something about soap and roaches. I don't know. Like my brother played this game, but I it it made such an impact on him that it made an impact on me. And I remember when it happened and he was like, I can't believe this person died. And I was like, uh, I'm sorry. Or also that's good for you. Whatever that meme is. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not reading uh, all that. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then God of War 2, which did a meme on the first game by having Zeus come in and mortalize Kratos just to run it through with his own sword. I mean, it's God of War. So like, you know, he's not dead, dead forever. He comes back. But um, I thought it was funny because he died in the first game and had to go to the underworld and then get out, you know, a la Hades. And yeah. then at the beginning of the second game, they were just like, we're just going to kill you again just because all the gods are assholes. And I was like, <laughs> I support that. And then I've also never played this one, but The Godfather has a video game, which I didn't even know about. Did yeah. you know about that? I know about it. I haven't played it. But um, it intersects with the story of the original movie. And I included this one just because it was hilarious. You play like this bakery owner who gets his shot broken into and you fight thugs for literally 30 seconds. There's a 30 second timer before someone shows up with a machine gun and just murders you. And then, and then you play as, as that character's son for the rest of the game. But like, I just thought it was such a hysterical and hilarious and like ultimately meaningless (laughs) death in the world of the Godfather. So (laughs) that's, that's great. Yeah. But that's my, that's my list. I thought it was all pretty funny and I really enjoyed like taking a look back at like other games that did this and, how they handled it and or why and um, how I think Mass Effect stands apart from that simply because it takes advantage of its own world building and storytelling to further the story by killing the main character and then bringing them back. That's like the central uh, moral conflict of the second game, right. honestly, is like, okay, am I Shepard? Am I not Shepard? Like, what's going on? And it culminates in a really beautiful DLC in the third game where there's another Shepard clone that comes and you have to fight them. It's so funny because like you get to the end of this game and you're resolved it and you're like, I'm Shepard. It doesn't matter. I'm Shepard. And then a clone shows up and is like, surprise, bitch, I'm Shepard too. And then you have to deal with like the morality of that in the next game. And I think it's so fascinating. Yeah, there's a DLC in Mass Effect 3 that is the plot of Toy Story 2, where there's the fake Buzz Lightyear and then there's our Buzz Lightyear that we are familiar with. The Citadel DLC is very hilarious as a fan service. You send up, send up and send off for these mm-hmm. characters. And it yes. is the best part of Mass Effect 3. Undoubtedly, yes. Here's the thing. I'm going to put an electric chair. I'm going to sit in this electric chair for the rest of the episode. And if we talk too much about Mass Effect 3 or have too many opinions about Mass Effect 3 moving forward, you can zap me with it because <laughs> we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. No, we don't. We really don't. So that I'm going to give you, I'm giving you the remote control for this electric chair here. If anything happens where we compare this to Mass Effect 3, zap me with it because I don't, I don't want to linger on it. We can go on divergence about Chrono Trigger and Fire Emblem Three Houses and Jack and Dexter <laughs> all day, but we will not talk too much about the sequel to Mass Effect 2. Absolutely. Anyway, one more thing that I want to say, if you don't mind me talking about video game deaths and 
Absolutely. Yeah. Red Dead Redemption. You, John Marston, the character that you have been in this open world game for countless amounts of hours, you are gunned down by the Pinkertons. And so you have to play in the final hours of the game. You are John Marston's son and you do not get to be John Marston again in the open world. It's a powerful moment in video games. And that you have to kind of spoil the ending to get it because it is mm-hmm. after hours and hours and hours of gameplay. I love that game so much. And the sequel, also great. Uh, love it very much. But let's go back to Mass Effect 2 now. Two years after the inciting incident where you save your crew, at least the ones that matter, uh, the ones that have voice lines, <laughs> <laughs> you save Seth Green. He's expensive. We got to keep him alive. Two years later, Commander Shepard wakes up in a lab run by the human supremacist group Cerberus. This is run by the elusive man, a.k.a. Martin Sheen. This is real. Mm-hmm. He was revived by an experimental procedure known as the Lazarus Project. For reasons the elusive man keeps, well, elusive, he believes that Shepard is a symbol for humanity and a respected human among aliens and stands to serve a greater purpose in the fight against the Reapers. Despite his radical beliefs, the elusive man has no intention of reviving Shepard strictly to control him. Uh, claiming that changing anything about their mind or abilities would alter what makes them special. Since the Citadel and the Council deny the imminent Reaper threat, Shepard reluctantly cooperates with the elusive man to find out more about the Reapers in order to prevent a mass extinction event. Shenanigans ensue. And boy, there are shenanigans. (laughs) Yeah. So like you said, there is that moral quandary of am I Commander Shepard that am I the real thing? Am I a facsimile of a real thing? What am I? And then also on top of that, you also have to deal with the fact that the people who revived you are terrorists who believe in the supremacy of one race over all, and you are using their resources in a way that even the establishment government isn't providing for you, even though you're a a super cop. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very interesting moral situation to be in, in a game that puts so much on morality you know, right. like, I think it's super fascinating the way they decided to subvert the original trope of the game in a way that like really makes you think about, you know, like, what am I doing and why am I doing it and who am I doing it for in a way that you didn't think about in the last game, probably. Right. I want to clarify that I don't think the game handles all these moral questions perfectly. No, um, absolutely <laughs> not. It is at the end of the day, it is still like a military, like, apologist, super crazy, like, capitalist thing. That, that we do have to reckon with and criticize, but it does also try to reckon with that with itself yeah. as well. So the, the Mass Effect games were Obama era neoliberal video games, and they kind of align themselves with establishment ideals more than they're not. They don't make it more complex than that. The greatest enemy to Commander Shepard at the end of the day is the bureaucracy of the establishment mm-hmm. more than it is the structure of it, I guess. Like it's mm-hmm. kind of just the establishment gets in the way of Shepard because assholes are in charge and they create the bureaucracy that Shepard has to work through. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really, it doesn't do much to also say that, oh, the Citadel outright is bad or. Yeah. You don't get to bad. really interrogate the nature of the the system that you're in. You just kind of like, you're just thrown into it. And it's really interesting. They take like a very like non-human centric approach to space civilization where, mm-hmm. you know, most of the aliens are like, you guys are newbies, you know, you, you don't know shit. Like, I don't care if you, if you have better ideas or you think you have better ideas than us, we've been around a lot longer. So you're going to know your place, which you guys is have been swimming in mud for millions of years. And yeah. <laughs> which I think is really funny uh, from that perspective, but it also like really does, you know, really prevent you from being able to ask those questions. Right. 
Yeah, it is uh, a game that kind of gives fealty to nationalistic ideas. It's not completely black and white, but it is, it's not the best. And you have to go into this series understanding that you're not going to get a lot of subversions of our ideas of government that are a lot more prominent in more recent media. But yeah, let's talk about Mass Effect 2 in relation to you, Maddie. You're our guest. I want this to be about meaningful and memorable experiences. And this game, you know, we've criticized it already mm-hmm. and we've criticized its sequel and we've criticized its prequel. I want to get to the productive discussion of this and why Mass Effect 2 specifically, speaking only for yourself, mm-hmm. what makes it better than the other games in the series? Well, so previously with Mass Effect 1, uh, you know, I got, I remember where I was when I had to make the Vermeer choice, but mm-hmm. just like that, just like that formative moment, I remember where I was when I realized that I was going on a suicide mission and every single choice that I made from that point would determine who lived and died in the final battle. So I remember like Mass Effect 2 for me is, is really enjoying, you know, like doggedly pursuing com- completionist behavior uh, for this game because I loved it and I loved the story and I loved whatever everything was happening. Um, but also realizing that many of the missions were time locked yeah. And also, and there would be consequences if you didn't do them in the best way. Um, but also that I remember just sitting there on a choice screen, just like pulling my hair out, calling my friends and getting on AOL to be like, what the fuck do I do? I don't know what to do. Somebody help me. I'm freaking out. Like the next thing that I do is going to change the game and I'm not ready for that. That to me is like the the quintessential core of Mass Effect, which is me going, ah, shit, I fucked up. My yeah. actions have consequences. Which I think is just so great, uh, especially for the age that I was when I played this game, because uh, it came out in 2010, I believe. Yeah, uh, 2010. <laughs> what a time. Like the morality is very black and white. Paragon and Renegade, there's very little nuance and there's very few instances mm-hmm. where Renegade is a logical <laughs> logical choice to make. It's mainly just being an asshole about a situation. I but mean, the- okay, so hot take. I, I do play Renegade Shep. I don't play full Renegade Shep because mm-hmm. I don't like being an asshole. But there are times, and maybe this is just me speaking as like a very, very petty human. Um, there are times mm-hmm. where I smash that Renegade interrupt knowing that some bad shit is probably going to happen. But I will feel very good and like happy with whatever asshole choice Shepard makes in that moment. Because like you said, like the, the way they like weaponize the bureaucracy of the systems to tell the story uh, are a very frustrating and b sometimes you really just want to punch somebody and there are mm-hmm. so many great great moments in which you as commander shepherd can hit that right trigger and just fucking wail on somebody and it feels so good because they're being such an asshole or they're being super smarmy and i don't really get to like wind up and punch people when they're being assholes in my life so right. i find that very ther- a very therapeutic act aspect of this game <laughs> There is a point, uh, I think it's in this game, where you are being like hounded by a journalist who is asking you very fair questions about your role as an authority figure in the military and the actions that you take as a result of that. Your character, Shepard, is defending themselves on the basis that the information is kind of incomplete or out of context. And if you pick the renegade option, you can just like shove the reporter and intimidate them instead of the option I would typically pick as a Paragon player, which is giving a, a speech about how cool and awesome I am and how the military is actually good, actually. I was just like, you know what? The ethics of this game aren't what I line myself up with in any way. So I may as well just like go full asshole in this one moment and just 
as a military commander shove a woman to the ground and just shout at them. <laughs> See, it's funny because Kalisa Kalisa bin Al- Sinan Aljanani Aljalani. She's actually, I think, a really great character, and I think she mm-hmm. gets a lot. She gets severely maligned mm-hmm. in the course of this game. But honestly, I just think that like that's one of the ren- renegade options that I never do. Like I never push her. Um, but I do. I will always take the like the asshole approach of giving the answer that the council and the Citadel doesn't want me to give like every right. single time. I'm like, oh, you want the truth? Okay, here we go. I'll cooperate. And everybody's like, no, Shepard, what are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, ah, bitch, that's my, that's my comeuppance. You're welcome. But it's funny because like, I actually think that <laughs> I'm going to get on my soapbox here. Um, I think that a lot of the the pushback with, forgive me, I'm going to mention the third game, Diana Allers in the third game, but also Kalisa Aljelani. You don't have the electric chair. You can mention the third game all the time you want. Okay, cool. <laughs> Um, but Diana Allers, who is a real per- who was modeled after a real person that existed in that exists in the video game news reporting, like yes, yeah, she, she is an I- IGN reporter Jessica Chobot at the time, yeah, yes, and uh, and Kalisa, like I think both of them re- get like really, really, really maligned by players of this game, primarily because they are quote unquote annoying women, mm-hmm. but also because it was in this Gamergate culture that we're in, you know, like. People, people really, really, really had a good time being total dicks to both of those characters. You're right. And I will never understand why, but I guess it's just because I literally wasn't built that way and I don't get it. But I do think that Kalisa has like a really, really interesting role to play in this game. And even though I get annoyed by her, I think her role is really, really important. Yeah, I don't actually, I don't have any hate against this particular character. Oh, in that moment, I, I was just I like, didn't yeah, mean yeah. to insinuate that you did. Yeah, for no, sure. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm just, I'm trying to separate myself from the Gamergate crowd mm-hmm. because ethics and gaming journalism was a whole thing at this time. But oh, like, absolutely. Yes. The Diana Allers thing I want to address real quick is just mm-hmm. like, so fucking weird. Like the thing so about- So weird. So fucking weird. And- it's just like, this is a modeled after a real character who was a gaming journalist at the time of release. Mm-hmm. There is a conflict yeah. of interest there, ethically, that you are creating in real life. In addition to the narrative and actual emergent problem in the game where you can fuck an independent journalist as a military commander yes. who is reporting on the war. You are giving this person very strange access to a situation and you can romance them. And also they are a real person voiced by the person that they are modeled after who at the time was a critic for the m- biggest gaming news company ever. So that's fucking weird. Ah, fuck. I got electrocuted because I'm talking about mass effect three. Whoops. Um, thank you for that. Yeah. I will but- say though, I will punch that Merc, that random nameless Merc off of the top of the Dantius towers every single time in Thane's recruitment mission, every single time I will punch him. How many times in your life can you kick someone off the top of a skyscraper? I just want to point that out. Yeah, it know? is messed up how a lot of renegade options are just you being a badass. And then other <laughs> times it's like 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 90% of the time when you get that prompt, it's like fire into a crowd of people or don't fire into a crowd of people <laughs> to know. get the bad guy. And then no. 10% of the time it's be really fucking cool and not a wuss in like a critical moment. Yeah. And there's also my other favorite Renegade Interrupt, I think, is Shepard is like, she's just come into this like loading bay or whatever. And there's like a Krogan like Merc standing on a balcony in front of her. There, the Krogan starts like going off about like all of his like beliefs and stuff. And he goes off and he goes off and there's a, a Renegade Interrupt appears. And if you click it, you can unholster your sidearm and shoot the gas tank underneath him so that it starts leaking. And then if, and then another one comes up and if you hit it again, 
you shoot the gas that is leaking and it explodes and you shut them up, which I think is just hysterical because I think you're going to have to fight them anyway. So might as well get the first shots in, right? Like, Yeah, it's so messed up. And it's just... <laughs> and the Renegade interrupts are always so funny in the actual content, in like the cinematography of a cutscene because yeah. like the person will be just gabbing, gabbing, gabbing and then it cuts to Shepard and then like the prompts in the bottom right corner of the screen, you're just sta- staring off into the middle distance and like... Mm-hmm. If you don't press the prompt because you're going for a paragon and not a renegade route, you're just like cutting back and forth to a completely zoned out person. But yeah, I just think it's I just think it's so funny. Like some of the times it's like, wow, literally murder this person by stabbing or shooting them in the back. And then other times it's like, you're going to kill this guy anyway, but do you want to look cool while you're doing it? There needs to be like options for war crime renegade or just <laughs> Han Solo renegade. Like exactly. we need to we need to delineate them. Exactly. Oh, so good. Talking a bit more about Mass Effect 2 and its virtues, what mm-hmm. is something you love about this game and that you wish more games would do? I think some other games do do this, but I also cannot under underestimate or understress the value of if you're telling a story, have your players invest in the characters in the story and have that rewarded in some way. Right. Because I think that the loyalty loyalty missions are a good start, but I think you could really complicate it and expand upon that that metric in a way that, for example, Fire Emblem's Three Houses does. If you allow characters to spend time with each other, you you can build supports with them and you can literally watch them develop as people as the game continues. And it's not just like a oh, here's your one loyalty mission. It's just a series of little cutscenes that show your influence on that person and then other people's influence on that person and how their character and outlook changes as a result, which I think is just so fascinating and very cool. It rewards you for spending Mm -hmm. time and focusing on them. Does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. I like how it's executed in Mass Effect 2, especially where the, the, the the loyalty missions are more developed. First of all, Mass Effect had this issue the first Mass Effect game had this issue where all missions that weren't the primary missions had like the same tone and pacing to them that they Mm -hmm. all kind of congealed into the other. But two is a lot more disciplined and developed. So these loyalty missions feel a lot more personal when you're carrying them out. Mm -hmm. And also genre. They have like some genre feel as well. Yeah, especially uh, I remember I don't like Jacob as a character, but the Jacob's dad mission gets into like some really weird and dark territory that like the first Mass Effect wouldn't even be able to convey in tone. These loyalty missions are kind of a westernized approach to like a traditional JRPG thing where like a lot of the main game is you doing a little mini arc for your RPG crew. Mm -hmm. So I like the way that it's implemented here that it is optional. You don't have to do it unless you're a completionist or if you just like really enjoy the interpersonal bond there. Mm -hmm. So I I, I think that Mass Effect is just really good at the way it implements it in Mass Effect 2 particularly, really good at the loyalty mission thing and making your relationship feel rewarding and not just in like a romantic prospects way, but just like in like the survivability of your crew, there is an incentive to do it because it plays into that suicide mission like you were talking about earlier. Exactly. Like you need to have everybody's mind on the money. And by doing that, you need to tell their stories and wrap up their and give them closure for stuff, which I think is really, really cool specifically for Mass Effect 2. We can, we can get into the Jacob of it all, but like Mm -hmm. him having closure with his father on his, on his loyalty mission is vital for him being able to, you know, get to a place developmentally where he will willingly give anything for this cause and do what needs to be done because he's been able to close that chapter of his life. And I think that is like a really beautiful, like way that, 
these ensemble based stories can really up the the quality and the value of the game. Yeah, no, I think that this game is just really good at tying in the loyalty mechanic and the companionship, the whole idea of it, it really weaves it into the gameplay. Well, these characters feel like they have arcs, and that they feel like characters with personality. And it's helped that this game uh, has much better direction and performances all around in the voice cast than the first game does. So everyone feels a lot more alive and engaged. Garrus, for example, just feels a lot more interesting in the second game than in the first game where he's he's fine. He's like one of the better squad members, but here he's just a lot more edgy and there's a lot more to him. You can really like feel A, Shepard's influence on him mm-hmm. and B, the way that they tried to develop each character as separate from the others rather than just being like, here's an NPC and here's an NPC and here's an NPC. You know what I mean? Right. So like the difference in like how early JRPGs would tie these arcs to be, oh, here's more opportunities for experience points. Here's ways for you to flesh out your character for them to get a cool weapon. In this, it's part of their motivation and their survivability towards the end of the game. There's a lot of, like you said, the suicide run is contingent on you having a fully 100% committed crew and having the confidence in them to perform well. And it's also based on your understanding of these characters, because you have to assign them to tasks that they need to carry out the mission properly. So if you need an engineer type character, you are assigning a character that's not really well-versed in engineering. Yeah. You're killing them because do they're not the Do not send person. Jacob to the vents. He's going to volunteer. Don't do it. It's the dumbest thing you could ever do. Do not put Jacob in the vents. Okay, Hank, sorry. you're putting <laughs> Jacob in the vents. He's going to die. You're not going to platinum the game, Hank. You're going to have to replay it, Hank. Oh my God. But yeah, no, like absolutely true. And that's that's a part of Mass Effect 2 that not only I found so engaging, because like I said, most of this game that I played for the first time, I was just sitting there with my controller like six feet away from me, like pulling my hair out, trying to figure out what I was going to do because I was so invested, especially my first run through. I didn't want to cheat and like look stuff up. Like I wanted to make the choice for me, but I also needed to call a friend and be like, what do I do? Don't actually tell me what I need to do. I just need to yell about it. And yeah. that was that was a very rewarding part of the game for me because I knew I could replay it as many times as I wanted. So it's a game that's fun to replay. It's one of the oh, easier it's eminently game. replayable. Truly, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, like, there's the Renegade and Paragon of it all, but it is also like <laughs> maybe I want to see how different configurations play out during the suicide mission. Maybe I really want to put Jacob in the vents and see what happens. <laughs> what whatever whatever you can get a lot out of it if you just enjoy the mechanics of the game and. And take them for what they're worth. Yeah, absolutely. I can't do a Renegade run personally because I I mentioned this again in the uh, the Fallout episode. I just it's it's a it's a big commitment for a thirty hour game to be an asshole for the majority of it. But and like I also mm. think that like there are some Renegade options that I think are more morally superior. Like in the like in the first game, the Paragon option is to kill the Rachni Queen, but the Renegade option is to let her go. Like or maybe a Cerberus. I don't know. I don't remember because I was playing Paragon 100% and I let the Rachni Queen live because why Why do a genocide? And and that's the that's the funny thing about Mass Effect. They're like, are you really sure that you don't want to do a genocide? This is going to make your life easier. And you're like, no, I don't want to do a genocide. Why do you keep trying to get me to do a genocide? I don't get it. Yeah, it's like, that's not my station. I'm, don't, yeah. I, I'm not going to commit a genocide. Just point blank, no. So mm-hmm. may, maybe they, they position it in a way. I don't remember what the dialogue wheel They're looks like, like. Oh, wow, like this... This Rachni Queen, like, we don't know if she's corrupted by the Reapers. We don't know if she's, like, lying to you. Like, she could be lying to you. Like, what if she's not the last one? And what if the Rachni come back in? And they do make a big point to be like, the Rachni were actually a huge problem for the galaxy. 
And the the reason they elevated with the Krogans was to take care of, of the Rachni because the Krogans were literally the only species that had a chance, which I yeah. think is also fucked up of them to genophage the Krogan and like all sorts of stuff. Like if y'all want war crimes, y'all Mass Effect is full of them. And you don't you don't perpetrate all of them. You actually you don't even perpetrate most of them. The the situation in the galaxy you come into is like really supremely fucked and it's mm-hmm. your job to like sift through all of it and make sense of it and go go with the choices that you think are right. Yeah. The, so <laughs> there's genocide on both sides. Um, yeah, indeed. <laughs> quite indeed. literally. And then you can perpetuate themselves some of them as a player. A lot of genocide. I understand that that is going to be a big component in a game where you are on multiple planets and these are these are inter- You are literally skills, trying but, to save the galaxy and or damn the galaxy depending on your mood. Yes, absolutely. But like you'd never run into these issues in a uh heterogeneous galaxy like star wars where mm-hmm. if a planet blows up it's like billions of people died of various races there's no no, <laughs> yeah, no there's none of that absolutely the, not you that. don't reckon with like the the actual like war criminality of it it's just like bad because a lot of people die in mass effect it's like every 20 seconds someone's like geno something 30 30- <laughs> The most ethic. We're trying to find the most ethical way of genociding people here. Yeah, indeed. even then, like even the last, very last choice in Mass Effect. Shit, we're not talking about Mass Effect Three. Sorry. Um, <laughs> electric chair, electric chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck, fuck. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, it is. It is very interesting. Like, like the global scope of the game means that your consequences can be global in scale, and I like it when they do it in ways that like don't necessarily resort to genocide but at the same time like if you're trying to do things something for let's say the geth and you fuck it up like the geth are all just gone or the quarians are all just gone like mm. you don't get a choice in that if you don't do it correctly i think it's very very fascinating i'll just put it that way i can think about the ethical implications of everything involving the geth for hours but we are not <laughs> that podcast we're not that kind. we're just here to talk about <laughs> why this game means a lot to you absolutely absolutely you can, like the amount of content you can just get out of the geth in these games is just insane but i will say on on the subject of like mass effect having palpable representation in my life like i'm a big i'm a big Caden alenko stan yeah and it's because it's not because ashley is a space racist which she is mm-hmm. but it is because like Caden alenko was the first time i saw someone who had my same disabilities and was like was like yeah. working through it and like wouldn't let i wouldn't let it stop him is a weird word but like he was in a system that both perpetuated and supported his issues and his storyline of like dealing with that on like space camp was like really fascinating to me. And I had never seen, you know, a character with chronic migraines and um, I don't want to really super get into it, but I was like a subject of, I was a subject of several medical studies as a child. And mm-hmm. and Caden was very like, Caden was very similar. He's like, you know, I felt like I was being studied, like I was being poked and prodded because he's like a first generation or second generation biotic. And so like, there's like a lot of that that was me walking into this game being like, oh, hey, I'm like that guy and he's doing pretty okay. Like he has hopes and dreams and he's accomplishing his life goals. Like that can be me. And that was the first time I really saw that in a game. And I think that has a lot to do with why I love Caden so much, but also why I ultimately imprinted on Mass Effect significantly. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is absolutely. And I agree with you that Caden gets lumped in with Ashley a lot, but Ashley is very much her own can of worms. She's very, (laughs) you talk (laughs) to her and you get her backstory and you try and bond with her. And she's like, sometimes to run away from a bear, you got to throw a dog at it. And it's just like, (laughs) you're like, what the fuck, Ashley? What's going on there? I asked you Um, if you were doing okay. And you're just like saying slurs at me. What the hell? And then like, 
I can only speak about like Ashley's thing because I really sympathized with Caden's like tragic backstory and I wanted him to live more than Ashley given the opportunity when I played these uh, the legendary editions last year. So that's mm-hmm. that was my like informing decision of it. And but- I will say that <laughs> Ashley does go through a lot of development if if she survives. Um however, I just like Caden more and I'm always going to like Caden more. Yeah. So, sorry. <laughs> I like Caden more and I understand that Ashley is a character that develops over games, but mm-hmm. we're talking about here and now. Yes. And like the best thing you can do, Ashley, for your development is to sacrifice yourself for a species other than your own. I'm sorry to say that. That I hate really to is say a that. very fitting thing that she does. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm sorry that I don't get to see how your character development goes, but this guy's a bi king who has gone through too much trauma for me to kill him off. Exactly. <laughs> Your your sacrifice means more in this moment than his will, for sure. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not a guy who does moral relativism. I'm not the kind of guy who can make these decisions for you. I, I, I'm not going to say, like, there is an objective, correct white person you can kill in a moment to, <laughs> to, to save the galaxy. But that was my logic when I was making these decisions for these pixels who mean a lot to me. Absolutely. And boy, do these pixels mean a lot to me. <laughs> yeah. So now we're going to kill your darling a little bit here. I want yeah, let's to do ask it. you, uh, you know, we've shit on the game already a lot on this mm-hmm. episode alone, talking about the ethical, no game is perfect. Many have come close, but even the most meaningful and memorable video games have their flaws. What about this game would you change? Um. So a lot of this game that I would change uh, actually, the legendary edition already did for me. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to run through some of those changes real quick because if people are like, nah, I don't know, I played the original games, here's why the legendary edition is worth getting. I'm going to deeply, deeply simp- simplify the changes that it makes. But ultimately, in this game specifically, they were mostly style updates and visual updates, including loading time reduction, which is in this game versus Mass Effect 1. Mass Effect 1 had the really fun elevator conversations, but this game just had that that like spinning schematics loading screen, it didn't have anything fun. So loading time reduction is super important because I only wanted to stare at that map for so long. Um, It added a photo mode. So you can do fashion fashion shoots with your shepherd. It added native controller support, which was a huge thing for Mass Effect PC players. I remember because I was one of them and it was horrible. And it also fixed a lot of the like gratuitous butt and boob shots that this game had no business having. Honestly, I say thank you, Bioware, for that. We really did not need to have the things that you put in this game. And I'm glad that you looked at that and you were like, "Mm, maybe you shouldn't. Um, So those are some of the Legendary Edition changes that I appreciated the most. But in terms of squad changes, I would say number one, and this was my kind of joke, kind of real answer, is uh, you got to make Jack gay because the men do not deserve her. She literally has a back full of tattoos of all of her like space lesbian gang girlfriends. There is no reason why she should not be romanceable by female Shepherd. Male Shepherd has no business doing the I can fix her with my dick storyline that that romance <laughs> is ultimately. Mm-hmm. Make Jack gay, the men do not deserve her. That's my first take. And my second take is that like Miranda could be like less of a sex bot on her own ship where she's XO and she's yeah. not trying to actively seduce anyone. Um, I understand why she dresses the way she does. I just like wish she would like put on some goddamn sweatpants and chill out every once in a while, even though I know that's like not indicative of like her, the hard assery of her character. I just think that she deserves to take off the cat suit once in a while um, because that wedgie is really uncomfortable and she deserves better. Yeah. Miranda in particular, the, (laughs) the way her character is dressed and recalling the earlier point about the gratuitous ass shots, 
there is a point in the game where she's like going down like her tragic backstory, talking about how she is a product of experimentation by her abusive father. And she's like, I was made perfect in every way. And like, it's horrifying what happened to her. She's had her agency taken away from her by a man. And speaking of agency taken away from her by a man, here is a gratuitous ass shot while talking about that. It's like, so like, it was so unself-aware. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was self-aware and it just give, didn't give a shit. But like, oh my God, I, I'm so mad about Miranda to this day. And um, It's a writing also, versus directing disconnect that happens a lot in film, but in video games it happens so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just absolutely horrible. I want her to get a little bit more agency in her mm-hmm. story in terms of that. Like, like nobody really reckons with the fact that she's just this like perfect eugenics child and like that's the whole like linchpin of her character, right? Like I'd never asked to be this perfect and I, nobody should be this perfect or engineered because I feel like a robot. Like, and so I feel like they really missed the opportunity to like really hammer that in, in a way and break that mold that they set because they kind of just keep her in it for the whole story. I guess my ultimate answer talking about the game that Kiefer is not allowed to talk about the, the, so the big change that I would make with Mass Effect 2, I think, is I would push, like, the haystrom of it all forward. Like, there were many, many theories and, like, takes to why the Reapers existed and what their purpose ultimately was. Mm-hmm. And Mass Effect 2 does an amazing job at laying out the dark matter theory that they were originally supposed to go with and that was ultimately scrapped because of reasons in the third game. And I think this is more of, like, a retroactive tip, looking at how Mass Effect 3 botched the Reaper story that Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2 were telling. I remember how absolutely obsessed with the ma- with the dark matter theory I was, and I like zoomed in on every single piece of information I could get in Haystrom and in Tally's recruitment mission. And I was hoping that in some way, if they made it more intrinsic intrinsic to this game, they couldn't have rewritten it so badly in three. But that's a whole conversation for another podcast, like fully. But I do I think that that would be the thing that I would change that I would have changed looking back at all three games together. But also, Jack deserves to be gay. Thank you. Jack deserves to be gay. And you need to, you need to follow through on a lot of ideas. I get that. I agree with you mm-hmm. about the dark. Ah, shit. Why'd you electrocute me? I said I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I never fully understood the Reapers as the, someone who, you know, mainlined these games. But I mm-hmm. understand that the ending of how they follow through on the Reaper stuff is going to be a lot more disappointing if you play these games live than someone like me who mainlined them and was still disappointed with the follow through but certainly yeah. not to the level of the contemporaneous times again i shocked myself i'm sorry but I, I i i'm agreeing to your point there i understand i mean this is a game that had like a lot of great layups from one to two and mm-hmm. then two going into three but then it sort of jj abrams itself in the, in, yes. in the third act but it's with the same director i don't itself. understand yeah if you don't mind me also Chiming mm-hmm. in on the, the the kicking Mass Effect 2 party here. Mm-hmm. I played the Legendary Editions, like I said. I have a problem with the implementation of all of the content of the game in terms of missions and availability of them. So what I'm saying is I have an issue with the way that the DLC access is given in this game. Because you can do the DLC basically any time throughout the story. And the game doesn't delineate the chronology of when this is supposed to happen uh, and that this was DLC originally. I had to sort of figure that out when a, a mission was taking a little bit longer than a mission usually does. So I was like getting into a vehicle after landing on a planet because I like the exploration aspect of Mass Effect 2. The idea that, like, oh, I go to another planet and do this little thing and what, what, 
why am I in a vehicle? What the hell? Oh God, it's DLC. And I get locked into DLC for a few hours when I just wanted to do a little side mission going into <laughs> a, going into a main mission. Yes. So, and then it's like chronologically, it's like this scene, they're referencing stuff that hasn't happened yet in mm -hmm. my story. So it's a little broken how they implement that. They should have like an icon or like a DLC colon mission. You know what I mean? But yeah, you had to play those when they mm -hmm. came out after the game's release and you would just sort of operate off the assumption that this play takes place near the end of the game or after the end of the game. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'd never played the original releases, but my experience was very thrown off by the idea mm -hmm. that like I'm just running into DLC and sticking with it. And maybe that's a problem with my play style, but I like to do the loyalty missions. So I'm going to do as much side content before the end of the game as possible. I was warned of the time limit element of the game in the first place. The Omega 4 relay lockout, yeah, for sure. It's funny because in Dragon Age, the mission maps are sort of laid out in a way that it can't. It does tell you. It gives you like a recommended level to do things. And if there is a point of no return, it, it will let you know in the little mission summary before you start the mission. I think that's a lesson that they learned from Mass Effect specifically from Mass Effect 2. I think that is something that they had to learn the hard way and that everybody else had to continue learning even though they already knew. And this ties into my other gripe with the galaxy map, which is that you don't see what missions are available on, on each planet without having to close the map and then go into the pause menu and then open your journal and then see like, oh, which, which planet do I have to go to based on the mission description of this mission? And then you have to hopefully you, f you find the right planet when you could just like save me an hour of inferring by and just, say go to planet on map or whatever, like yeah, have that button in the quest screen. Yeah. I am an advocate for you don't need to hold the player's hand, but mm -hmm. you also don't need to inconvenience a player by just straight up like telling them like, good luck pressing which of these orbs is the right orb for the mission. <laughs> That's too much. You uh, can just say mission, visit Caden and say hi to him. Help me out a little bit. Save me a few minutes yeah. here. I have to play other games. Speaking of visiting Caden and say hi to him, you're referring to the Horizon mission, which mm -hmm. is a very good mission, very well, very well written. And I think I like it a lot because as as a Mass Effect player, you're used to kind of getting what you want. Like if you can do this mission, people will give you what you need and you can do it. Specifically, the Vermeer Survivor on Horizon is the only place where that is not true, where no matter how many times you ask, no matter what you do, that player will not rejoin your squad. And that is something that you have to live with. As someone who loves Caden, I was heartbroken. He was like, hey, fuck you, Shepard. Like, I thought you were dead and you never told me otherwise. And you were like, ah, no, I couldn't. The game wouldn't let me. But you have to like live with that. And you have to like go through this unpleasant conversation. And you have to live with those consequences because Shepard can't always get everything that Shepard wants, even yeah. if you really, really want it. For so. the most part, the game is a power fantasy, but they do give you like little moments of knife twisting where you can't get what you want. Even if you are doing the right things and pressing the right buttons, a person is going to be hurt by you. Do the words political shitstorm mean anything to you? The Overlord DLC of Mass Effect 2. Ooh, that's a can of worms. Yeah. Um... And you're free to give me your take too. And mm -hmm. I know that other people have different takes about their handling of this story beat, but it is a lot more horror oriented than even the scary parts of the main game. The, the level design is very much conveying like destroyed laboratory after an incident. The the walls and everything are the, the actual like room layouts are just designed for horror stuff. Like something shitty went down here in the vein of a horror video game. You are finding out what happened here listening to old audio logs and reading files on certain 
events that transpired here. And it comes back to this scientist saying, I did unethical experiments on my autistic brother. On paper, that's not necessarily a bad story to write, but their handling of the autistic character and the kind of the way that they, they handle touchy subjects without taste. And the writing of the uh, the uh, autistic character is very much like, do you know an autistic person? Do you know anybody with a neurodivergence at all? Because you just like wrote a, a skittish, socially inept child in an adult's body that just yells numbers. Like that is a very reductive and very mainstreamed negative depiction of autism in media. And I understand that some people say it's empathetic towards the autistic character and it isn't, you know, it, it's not saying like what the brother did was correct, but I'm saying like, th- this is a moment when Mass Effect needed some nuance to handle a situation or needed to consult with people in the mental health field or actual autistic people to assist in the writing of something that is horrifying to deal with without payoff of giving this character agency as anything other than a victim. Yeah, I think that I think that Overlord really is as a neurodivergent person, I think that Overlord really is a gross representation of both autism and ableism apology kind of. You know, some of that is intentional in that like it the reason that Gavin Archer is such a bad person is because he does all these terrible things to his brother out of a place of love because of his brother's like ableism in relation to not being able to love or appreciate his autistic brother as as he is. But I think that like that nuance that was attempted was completely lost in the game and the game design of it. And I think that ultimately it's just super harmful. And there were a lot of people mad that they included over the Overlord DLC in Mass Effect the Legendary Edition. I think it needs to be included as like a problematic thing that mm-hmm. exists. We can't erase that it happened because it did happen, but they needed, I think they needed to change it before they put it in somehow before they put it in, in the legendary edition, even if that was just being like, hey, having a screen that was like, hey, this mission deals with like unsavory portrayal of neurodivergency. Mm-hmm. And even just that, even that just one little like pop up before you start the Overlord DLC would have done a lot to manage that and manage those expectations. And instead they were just like, meh, here it is. And I don't, I don't think that's responsible either. You know what I mean? Are you self-censoring yourself or are you going to make this an optional thing that you don't need for completion? Because I do think there's actually an achievement tied to completing the mission in the Legendary Edition. That's just upsetting. I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know that this was an aspect of the game before playing it. So mm-hmm. when it's like portraying all this stuff, I'm just like, whoa, whoa. I, right. I It goes to the issue that like, you know, it was DLC, so it wasn't in the game until it was DLC, Mm -hmm. but also you had to purchase it. Like there was a gate to open to get to that content, but nobody knew that that Legendary was going to just throw in the DLC without discussing that firsthand, you know? Otherwise, I think there would have been more of an approach. Right. If anything, their implementation of it in the Legendary Edition is worse than if they had either removed it or put a warning of any kind there because you could just stumble into it. Exactly. If I replay Mass Effect 2, I'm going to skip the mission. Whatever consequences emerge from that, I don't care. It's just There like, aren't consequences because not doing the mission DLC, wasn't yeah. built into the base game. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it, There's like a small, a very small thread. Uh, never mind. I can't talk about Mass Effect 3. Sorry. Um, you just got, you just came so close to getting zapped. I hope you know. No, this is good for me. I need, I need this restraint. <laughs> I need, I don't, I don't want to do it. Right. 
But yeah, that's a that's a big gripe. And my final gripe that I'm going to say is Liara is not in the game except in the DLC. And <sighs> I like Liara because Liara is one of my is is my wife, you know. Hear me out. I love mm-hmm. Liara, but I hate blue sex aliens. Specifically in Mass Effect 1, they tried really hard to infantilize her and still yes. made her a romance option. And even if you're nice to her at all, no matter which gender shepherd you are, which I am fine with because I am bisexual and I don't think I don't think that aliens should necessarily have a gender preference mm-hmm. unless it's baked into their, you know, character as a choice. Specifically, Liara being this like very quote unquote nubile scientist who all of the other Asari are like, she's less than a hundred years old, she's such a baby, blah blah blah. Like when these characters are characters that live for thousands of years and every other Asari is like, yeah, that is a child. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, no, it's cool, Shepard. You can romance her. It's fine. And I and I and that's to say I love her arc. I love her journey. Yeah. Specifically, her Shadowbreaker journey is so important and vital to her character because it makes her more than just like a like an uwu science girl. Yeah. And I think that's super important. And it also gives her more agency and more power in the world, which makes yeah. that feel less bad to me. But yeah, and that and that's just a symptom of, you know, this game being made in like the early 2000s and then pushed out into the world. Like, unfortunately, that is a reality that you have to contend with. Problematic age gap discourse wasn't as fully formed as it was today. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But like, like, and listen, I'm I don't I don't mind an age gap discourse. But what I do mind is like infantilization and also objectification that I will admit that they do fix in the Shadowbroker DLC by making her more than just like a sexy scientist. Yeah. So. so you make a lot of great points. The writing of Liara isn't great in one. She starts as a damsel, you rescue her, and then like there's an uncomfortable amount of emphasis on the fact that she is an equivalent young adult out in this world, mm-hmm. basically in college at yeah. 100 years old. I'm working on my master's program is basically Literally, her approach. To he's everything. a college grad. Yes. You, you, you can talk about the dynamics of this, but they don't mm-hmm. really truly explore the dynamics of like different levels of maturity, except in like a tragic sense of like, I get a lot of husbands and they keep dying. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But the way that they write Liara in two specifically is way more interesting. They gave her an edge. There's obviously like a lot of growth and maturity from like one to two. And it's like, I wish I could take that on my ship with me and like explore that yeah. more because- mm-hmm. I'd like the Shadow Broker DLC, and I like the stuff when we're interacting on the weird libertarian slave trade planet, Liara, where <laughs> all crime is legal and all you can ship whatever you want. There's just like a dark undercurrent to all that. And it's like yeah. her having been changed from a traumatic event and assuming that, you know, the way I did it was, well, I'm not going to romance Ashley. I picked male Shepherd because I looked at the romance options throughout all the games. Mm-hmm. And I arrived at a point where I was like, well, I mean, Male Shepherd has a lot more options here, a lot better options. <laughs> all right. And then like Ashley wasn't, I'm not picking Ashley. So it's like, all right, Liara. So when you do that, like her, her arc is like, my partner died and blew up. And like, we're at points in our life where we can't reconnect and I've moved on and have a different partner. And you're just like in this weird, uncomfortable place. And in this one, it's like, Liara's gone. Hey, Tally, what you doing? <laughs> yeah, literally. Oh my God. And it's so funny too, because- I, I was an original, like, OG Caden Mancer. So that 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 played into my Caden factor, too. Like, I wasn't able to recruit my love interest, and I wasn't able to continue my love interest story because they were so pissed at me for dying, which is fine and also fair and also valid. And I don't think I wouldn't do the same thing in that situation. But it's, like, this beautiful thing where it's, like, okay, like, that door is closed, and I got to figure out where to go from here. Yeah. 
I like the way that they handle that kind of thing, like decommissioning mm-hmm. your two romance options and giving them like, well, I've moved on. What do you, what did you expect? I, mm-hmm. I wait for you to be revived by a white supremacist. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> like. Yeah. Uh, so it, many levels to this. It's like, yep, yep. Fair enough. See you next game. And then. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're literally working with the terrorist organization and, the, and they're like, I know, but I'm using them. And they're like, I don't care. You're working with a terrorist organization. You're wearing the <laughs> uniform right now. Yeah. <laughs> It's 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 wild. The, the game, like I said, like do not extrapolate any actual moral stuff from this game. But like you get some full, you get some fun character work out of it. You do. You really, really do. Yeah. So which brings me to my next point. The main draw of Mass Effect isn't necessarily it's beat for beat story or like the gameplay, although there are fun gameplay options. But the interpersonal relationships are what has made this game so endure in the minds of the people who have played it main draw of Mass Effect is your relationship and your bond to these characters. And you take time out of your mission to do these character-specific quests. There's a background problem or unresolved trauma, and you work with them to resolve the issue, and your bond with them grows across the trilogy. Mm-hmm. So with that, I want to ask you, especially in this game, because I think this game has the best squad of the three core games. Who it's is your got favorite? the best ensemble, undoubtedly. Sorry, yeah. continue. Even though my, my boy Rex is an, a, a squad member, but... Who is your favorite companion in the Mass Effect game? Two. Oh my god. Sorry. It's really, really a toss-up between three characters. Go for it. Yeah, uh, four characters. But I love <laughs> them all. It's nah, five characters. No, see, I can't do that. I can't do that. So I'm going to give special honors and shout-outs to Grunt, who is a tank-born Krogan, who is like Miranda, was genetically engineered to be the supreme of his race, and you just get a giant baby. Like yeah. this is Shepard's giant baby, his large her large son, who will fight and die and go to war for her, and mm-hmm. she for him, and he for him. And it's maybe the most beautiful parental relationship in a video game I've ever had. Ever. It's sweet. Why are you following this human, young one? Why not? She's the strongest warrior I've seen. You should be learning from your own kind. He's a valuable part of my crew. What else does he need to know? I'm working up to my top two, I think. Okay. Um, I got to shout out Legion. I've been wanting a guest squad mate since literally Mass Effect dropped. And I'm so glad that we got one, even if it was late. And a fun thing about Legion is that he actually has dialogue for every single loyalty mission. Mm. Like, even though you recruit him after the Derelict Reaper, so halfway through the game, and you've probably done a lot of your loyalty missions by then, they wrote loyalty mission dialogue for him for every loyalty mission, which I love that. Like, that's a level of dedication that is very common, a common theme in this game that I think we've lost in the year of our Lord 2022. And I wish we could go back to because they really did plan for for as many eventualities and opportunities as they could. And they tried their best to honor the characters for that. And if Legion dies, you actually get the Geth VI replacement for the Geth squad member. And Mm -hmm. actually that VI even has a whole bunch of dialogue for various missions that pretty much nobody ever sees because I don't think most people kill Legion. Right. It's very, very interesting and fascinating. But the fact that they loved that character enough to put him in every loyalty mission, knowing that he would not be in every loyalty mission, is, like, really, really great. Social engineering. The Council blames the Geth. Repeat the lie enough. They will not worry about the Reapers. So that's Grunt and Legion. I also got to shout out Garrus, because his development and Liara's development go hand in hand as, like, that Archangel mission when you're like, oh, we got to go recruit the sniper and then you find out it's Garrus and yeah. you lose your sh- ever-loving mind. 
I remember crying when I saw it was Garris. Like, I was so happy. I, like, words cannot express. It's like, it was like coming home to an old friend, even though I had literally just seen that friend because I had just finished my latest playthrough of Mass Effect. I was so excited. Um, they even give him, like, the cinematic, like, it's Garris. And we just, like, they, like, give you the applause moment in a video game. It's so good. It's so good. What are you doing out here on Omega? I got fed up with all the bureaucratic crap on the Citadel. Figured I could do more good on my own. At least it's not hard to find criminals here. All I have to do is point my gun and shoot. You nailed me good a couple of times, by the way. Concussive rounds only. No harm done. Didn't want the mercs getting suspicious. Uh-huh. If I wanted to do more than take your shields down, I'd have done it. Besides, you were taking your sweet time. I needed to get you moving. But I guess my top two have to be, like, Mass Effect 2 exclusives, and those are uh, Jack and Thane, and mm-hmm. I love both of those characters for completely different reasons. Like, I am a deeply alternative person. Like I mentioned earlier, I was also a medical experiment in my youth, so I relate a lot to Jack. Right. Um, her specific spot as a victim of the system who refuses to at all be a victim and is instead is like, you know what? I'm going to join a lesbian space gang about it. You know what? I'm going to fucking become a, a boss bitch about it. You know what? I'm going to just be an amazing person about it. And I really also remember too, the first time I played that game, I was like, who's this Jack guy? I don't care about this Jack guy. Who the fuck is this guy named Jack? I don't care. But she like subverts those gender expectations Mm -hmm. in her recruitment. And I think that's so amazing and awesome. And I love her to death and I'd do anything for her. And her development in this game and the next game is also really cute to see because she becomes a teacher and she finds, you know, a thing that she's not willing to be like ironic about. And that's really valuable and important. They thought they were so clever. Turns out, mess with someone's head enough and you can turn a scared kid into an all-powerful bitch. Fucking idiots. But all that being said, like, my boy Thane Krios, he's the best. The warrior monk to end all warrior monks. I just, I just love that trope so much and he does it so well. He's, like, almost, like, made in a laboratory in a way that, like, is, like, here's this character with this tragic backstory and this, like, fraught relationship with his son and... Also, like, this fraught relationship with his life and his identity, you find out he's terminally ill, and that's why he's on this suicide mission, because he's not going to live, so he wants to do something that means something before he goes. Thane Krios is going to die. Maybe mm-hmm. not in this game, maybe in the next game, but he is going to die, and it's going to be painful, and Shepard, you can't have everything you want, and yeah. you can't fix this man and save his life, because A, he's not going to let you, and B, he doesn't want to, and C, you can't. You just can't. And it's so good. Thane might be my favorite now that you like put it that way because I he he looks really cool. He's got the uh the Abe Sapien like from Hellboy kind of vibe to him. He has so uh, true. The way that he talks is just really cool and his like weird like little like the amphibian eyes. Yeah, yes, the, the visions that he has with like his perfect recall where he's living in a memory is just fucking cool. It's and like so you said, good. The, the warrior monk aspect of it is like my body is a weapon and. I dedicated myself wholly to this cause of doing this one thing to the detriment of my personal life. My son resents me for it. And it's like, Mm -hmm. damn, dude, you're really fucking cool. I wish you were my dad. (laughs) It's like catnip. I can't explain it. And like, there's also like this funny thing where like, if you romance anyone in Mass Effect 2, who's not human, Morden will comment on like random physiological aspects of that character's race. Mm -hmm. Uh, throughout the game and my favorite fact is that drell are if you lick them they're hallucinogenic so like you can acid trip 
He's a poison dart frog. Hell yeah. Drow. And I and I love that for him. And I love that for me. And I love that for my shepherd who definitely <laughs> romances him. I, I go between like Thane and Garrus like equally, I think. Even if you even if you don't romance him, he starts calling your character Kalihira, which is one of his people's gods. She's a warrior god. The fact that like he has such esteem and respect for you to decide that you are the avatar of one of his gods that he worships is just crazy. It's so good. Yeah, I love Thane a lot. I love Thane. I love Thane. I love Thane. One moment. Prayers for the wicked must not be forsaken. Do you really think she deserves it? Not for her. For me. The measure of an individual can be difficult to discern by actions alone. Take you, for instance. All this destruction, chaos. I was curious to see how far you'd go to find me. Well, here I am. Like the other characters are cool. Morden is, you know, Professor War Crimes. He's, he's oh my god, he's, he's and quirky. he's so good at it. He's so good at it. He's so good at it. Like, there's not again. Like the reason the ensemble is so great is like you named like four very great characters, and Morden only came up on like a on a side bit there. But my favorite mm-hmm. line is lots of ways to help people. Sometimes heal patients. Sometimes execute dangerous people. Either way helps. And like that's Morden in a nutshell. Like yeah, he said ethics. I don't know her. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Sometimes you help people by hurting others. Exactly. Love that for him. The Hippocratic Oath doesn't say I have to protect this guy. <laughs> Morden, I think Morden would fist fight the Hippocratic Oath for sure. For yeah. sure. I mean, like the, considering like his backstory is like, yeah, I, I worked on the Genophage. I and, did the like, Genophage. That was me. And I'm going to spend my whole life, what what is it, like re- atoning for it. And I love that character. I love that character bend. I love that character arc. I think it's so cool. Yeah, he has the most satisfying, like, tragic ending in Mass Effect 3. I will say that. I'll take the shock for that one. He actually, yeah, like, you will. that one, you there's will. catharsis on that one. I will share that shock with you because <laughs> it deserves to be said. But, yeah, Morden's a great character. Garrus is a good character. Obviously, like, there's there's appeal to him. He looks great. His cop tendencies, I, I always, like, give him a little side eye at. But he he's trying. He's trying to yeah. un- He's trying to kill the cop in his mind a little bit. Yeah, he really is. And there and what's cool is that you can either encourage him or discourage him from doing that because mm-hmm. it like depending on the things that you say to him, which I think is also another fascinating aspect of this game. You find him and he's like a thin blue line punisher <laughs> sticker of a man and then like <laughs> you see how that like line of work physically scars him at the <laughs> Oh my god, yes. Yeah, he is He's great. I love him as a character. He is he is a Punisher sticker. It's it's so great because like he leaves C-Sec in the middle of Mass Effect 1 because he's like, hey, maybe cops are bad. And you're like, yes, Garrus, yes. And then you go to Mass Effect 2 and he's like, but I could be worse. And you're like, yes, no, I don't know what to tell you here. He's like, the problem with cops is that they follow too many rules. I want to know what Frank Castle has to say about Garrus Vicarian. Oh, also, here's a fun fact that uh, <laughs> I am not ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very like not. I was I was I was a social person in high school, but I am also a person that got kicked out of private school, and I had to go to my senior year at a, at a public school, and I could not relate to literally anyone around me. Not because I was in a private school mindset, but because I was in a de- I was deeply in my like like nonconformist anti-establishment phase. And right. I didn't want to talk to anyone. I didn't want to make friends with anyone. I had friends, but I like my goal was not to be liked. People liked me because of the way that I was, but I wasn't trying to like make anybody do anything. You know, also when you're a senior in high school, people are going to bug you. They're like, tell me about your life. Tell me about yourself. 
there was this annoying ass person in one of my classes who Mm -hmm. was always trying to talk to me and always trying to hit on me. And I was like, I'm not having a dude. And I managed to convince him that I had a boyfriend at my prior school named Garrett Vicarian. Oh my God. And he had no idea. And all of my nerd friends lost their shit every time I talked about Garrett. And it was like a bit that like ran through the whole senior year. And they were like, and they were like, so what Garrett do for Valentine's Day? And I was like, well, we like climbed a mountain and then we like shot things with guns and like they like lost it like absolutely lost it because that was the year that Mass Effect 3 came out so like I was referring obviously to that loyalty mission and like (laughs) it was so funny that's hilarious oh my god (laughs) but it got the guy off my back and then instead he was totally invested in my relationship with this person who didn't exist but he didn't know that and so I would just like make up the weirdest bullshit and he'd be like oh that's amazing and I would just sell it I would just sell it Mm-hmm. I don't know if I ever told him that that Garrus was not my boyfriend, but um, I don't know. I hope he. I hope he still kind of believes it. Or maybe <laughs> I hope he. I hope he played Mass Effect later and was like, "God damn it, I got maddied." Yeah, I mean, that's the funnier thing happening. Like realizing <laughs> that you were lying incessantly to this person, and he believed it to the point that he is checking in on this person. Yeah. Ah. Uh, God, that's hilarious. That was a a real thing that happened, yeah. (laughs) Uh, My God. So, Uh, speaking of romance, does that mean that uh, Thane is, like, ultimately a romance when you do two, or... What 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 are your thoughts on like the romantic parts of this stuff? Um, I enjoy them for the most part. I have more. I'm glad that I can't romance as many women because I have so many problems with the way they write the romances of the female characters in this game. It's bad, folks. It's really bad. But like, if I could romance Jack, I would. But I can't. So I romance Thane. I was so funny because the first time I played this game, I was like, I'm gonna be loyal to Caden. I'm gonna be loyal to Caden, and then I was not loyal to Caden, <laughs> and. That was a choice that I made and it was fine. But I found out, I didn't find out that I could romance Garrus on my first playthrough. I think I found it on my second playthrough. And I was like, oh, I've been wanting to romance him for years. And so I did that and it was great. And it was beautiful. And then I did a Liara playthrough. And I think in that one, I romanced Samara just to see what that was like. Not a lot of people can say that they um, they romanced Billie Eilish's mom. But mm-hmm. indeed, that is who voices Samara and Morinth. Which is funny now, considering my Twitch name and stuff. But yeah, so yeah, it's it's generally Thane or Garrus for me. I'm just a sucker for a sad ending, so I love I love romancing Thane. Like, there's nothing about it that <laughs> that isn't like completely my shit. Yeah, no, Thane is really cool uh, to mm-hmm. romance. When I played Mass Effect Two, like I said, like I did Liara one, and then two, it's like, oh no, I'm just not here. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then again, Tali, hey, how are you doing? And mm-hmm. I think Tali is, like you said, like all the women have like a problem, but I do mm-hmm. think that like there is like a very interesting layer to Tali's character where she is like exiled and having to carry on the burden of her well-respected father who had a lot of dark stuff that he was trying to protect his yeah. colony from and also his own daughter from. And then mm-hmm. you having to be your, the the cop lawyer slash husband who has That's to go just to such court. a mess of influence or in, like a mess of like conflict of interest that i love like truly you having to choose between like do i make tolly happy in this moment or do i do something for her that will like liberate her from this responsibility of being this person and like 
you know that that was just a really cool loyalty mission to follow through on and it's like so good yeah and really, i i love the tally romance um i've never played it myself because i refuse to play park mirror shepherd no offense mm-hmm. mark mirror um you're a great person and i like i like you a lot but the for me like the femme chef voice acting is it's miles and miles and miles above the male chef voice acting so i just his lines just don't don't engage me in the same way so i've always right. played femme chef well jennifer hale is like the voice yeah. of like video games like she's terrific <laughs> she's at her the job. woman of a thousand voices literally and the texture that she gives these lines which you know have to be read in isolation so like it's not mm-hmm. mark Mir's fault that the performance comes across as stilted sometimes but like it's an experience thing and then you know there's an interesting texture to fem shep as a character just being able to walk in this world generally respect it as a woman whose authority is trusted by not just the women, but also the men of this world. And, mm-hmm. you know, that that creates a more interesting layer to the proceedings. It's just really, it's good stuff. And mm-hmm. I, I, again, like I did Male Shepherd because like, nerd girl, okay, hello. And like, exactly. Like, I can't like, romance Tolly and I'm really sad about that. And I know. if I could stand, if I could stand listening to Male Shep, I would, I would play Male Shep and romance Tolly, but I cannot. So I do not. So I just watch it on YouTube. <laughs> Mass Effect's doing a lot of the male fantasy, not in the male fantasy, like, I've, yes, male fantasy, but like the power fantasy in general is like a big part of the selling point in this game. Yeah, definitely. These people will be your friends if you're nice to them. And some of them might even love you and you get a cute little cut scene that's going to be on <laughs> Fox News. But Oh my God. But you know, it is unfortunate that you are locked out of certain romances mm-hmm. because of the gender that you choose. And right. Obviously, like it was progressive for the time of 2007, 2010 to even have an option. Mm-hmm. It was. Liara being like a heterosexual version. It's Joss Whedon allyship is what I call it, where it's like, <laughs> yeah, we invented a non-binary race of alien that isn't woman, uses she her pronouns, but not, no, not woman, different woman, yes. <laughs> Yeah. And they try they try really hard to combat that. No, they don't try really hard to combat that. They try a little bit to combat that. There is a really cool scene. I don't know if it's in this game or the next game where there's a Turian, a Salarian, and a human sitting at the bar and they're all fighting about what the Asari dancing on their table looks like. Specifically, they're like, no, I see her as this. Wait, no, she looks like a Salarian to me. No, wait, she looks like a Turian to me. And it's completely fascinating. So like the gimmick is that like because we're all humans playing this game, Asari all look human to us. But I wish that they like did that better. And I think the I think the video game technology of the time just wasn't there yet. But I wish they either made Asari look more or like androgynous, I guess is the better word, because non-binary people don't look in a certain way. Um, But like I wish they either leaned more into the androgyny or they actually tried to portray Asari as these various amalgamations of races. Right. So they just didn't do that. They were just like, whatever, human, female. It's a convenient way of saying like, hey, these are why this like race is super illustrious to the male gaze. But also like that doesn't really factor in like the the litany of tastes that, you know, you as an individual player can have. So it's kind of like a retrofitted lore reason for why they look like that. Although it's not universal, there's just a lot that you, you made a mistake to start with and you tried to mitigate the mistake, but there's also a lot of additional. But you doubled that, down on it. Yeah, it's a mis- it's a double down revision. Mm-hmm. You know, Joss Whedon allyship, you know, like it's sec- it's exactly. sexy and therefore feminist. Yeah, Ugh. it's uh, oh, damn Joss Whedon. Yeah, no, I, I hate Ugh. the guy, but Fuck that guy. I think it's just like a good way of contextualizing that thing. 
so yeah, uh, you're a Tali person and you are, you, you, you like Thane and you want Jack, but you can't have Jack because she is as coded as she is. She is very much another product of like a different kind of thing men like. The, yeah. And like the, the, especially the, the comp het of the time, I should say. Knocking on the door of Bioware at the statue of Jack going, I'm going to get you out of there. Your name is Bioware. Yeah. Make it happen. Like I said, the representation could have been better. Absolutely. So yeah, let's move on from the companion stuff a little bit. Yeah. I do have a question for you about the future of Mass Effect in general. The last two games had a sort of mixed reception overall in the court of public opinion. Again, I'm not going to talk about what happened with three, but it changed a lot of, it changed the dynamic between player and developer in a way that the industry has suffered for over the past few years. And we see emerge again with Gamergate. It's 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 a very early version of like online culture wars and how that's shaped. Yes. And then Andromeda was going to be the the soft reboot the series needed to get back on the map. And it, you know, the initial reception to it was poor. And now they're trying again. They had a Liara-centric trailer teaser that was very vague about what the future might be. But there's a Mass Effect 5 question mark coming. And then they're also developing a live action series at Amazon. Mm-hmm. What are your opinions about the future of Mass Effect and what do you want out of it as someone who is super attached to this series? My thoughts are trepidatious, to be sure. <laughs> Primarily because of the state of live action video game adaptations and TV shows, with the notable exception of Arcane, which is the best video game adaptation I've ever seen in my life. And that is saying a lot because I've seen a lot and most of them are bad. 10 out of 10 recommend. This is my plug. Go watch Arcane. Thank me later. Thank you. I have to um, watch it. I'm not a League guy, but everyone's been no, like, you don't talking have to know I know, anything. yeah. You don't have to know anything about League to appreciate it. It's just if you also play League, you will appreciate it slightly more. But even the people that I know who don't who don't play League are like a generally and genuinely obsessed with the world building, the characters, the story, the music, the animation. Literally every single piece of it is incredible. I'll check it out. The animated stuff on Netflix I generally like. So it's... I'm more than happy to look at it. But so I have a lot of beef with A, video game adaptations and B, people adapting Mass Effect because Mass Effect is so personal to me and it suffers from like the revenification of these stories, right? Like the default is a white man and I just don't agree with that in any way, shape or form, especially not in Star Wars where Revan could be literally an alien as well. And that just like doesn't, anyway, but I, <laughs> I have a lot of anticipation. I think that, I, I really honestly think that they would fuck up if they adapted or touched the Shepard story at all or made any canonification of Shepard at all and in terms of gender. Like, I think that would be, A, that would alienate at least half your audience. Right. And B, if they went with a male Shepard, it would just be another thing. Like, I remember when Jennifer Hale was fighting so hard to get any representation at all for her character. Mm-hmm. It was not until the third game that they were like, yes, female Shepherd exists. And to have that moment, I remember was so huge for me and for a lot of people that loved this game and for her because she worked so hard and they made a flippable cover. So you could do, you could have either femship or male ship. It was such a win to even have that because of the state of video games at the time and also because of the state of, you know, stories and storytelling and what execs were willing to put money towards, et cetera. And I think after The Last of Us and Horizon Zero Dawn, we've we've come such a long way 
in video game storytelling and and representation. And I think, you know, we can always do better. Like, I think there's way, way more stories that need to be told and way more identities that need to be upheld. But like, I think that we're finally at a place where like the default is not like sweaty man player character because it was for a very, very long time. I think now the default is choose your own adventure, especially in the marketing of the game. Like that was a huge, huge, huge thing. It was always male Shep and Bem Shep never got any time and it was bullshit. I don't want them to touch Shepard at all. I am directly adding Henry Calvo right now. Fuck <laughs> you. You're not my Commander Shepard. You shouldn't be my Commander Shepard. I don't want anything. I don't want you to do anything with Commander Shepard. You can be somebody else. That's fine. But you cannot be Commander Shepard because Commander Shepard is so personal to so many people. And that Shepard looks so many different ways and cannot be constrained to one gender. I'll definitely forward that email over to him. <laughs> He's a fan of the pod, obviously, Bill. <laughs> imagine if you, like imagine if you did that and like next episode it was like the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt with Henry with Cavill. Henry Cavill. <laughs> I mean, I got some beef with him too. He was not yeah, my yeah, choice yeah. of of Geralt, but he did a good job in the TV show, I will say. He's he fine really in the show. Job. Like I mean, like he's not the most ranged actor. I'm not afraid to it's say that. It's funny because the the actor that I was rooting for for Geralt Henry Cavill literally just ended up copying his entire voice for Geralt, mm-hmm. which so I felt vindicated. And who was the uh, because- actor that you were rooting for? Because I didn't know about the casting. Nikolai Coster Waldo was also up in talks, and he was probably my second choice. But my number one choice was Black Sales and Shameless actor Zach McGowan. Oh, okay. And I think he would have done a really great job. And he was also a fan of the books and the games. And he has like the video game cred, obviously. He's already done like a Ghost Recon and uh, mm-hmm. Resident Evil. I mean, and he's there for like, he he already has a bunch of horse experience and he already has a bunch of sword experience. Like, what more could you ask for? Like he plays a he plays a guest character in that CW show, The Hundred, where he literally just looks like Geralt already because they put him in leather armor and like painted his hair white. They didn't like dye his hair white. It was like a like a war paint choice or whatever. So like. Mm-hmm. He looks just gritty and grimy and dirty already. And he has that voice, that like gravelly thing that you want from Geralt. And he's so good at playing that like restrained, like angie boy that I think Geralt just is. I don't know. He would have been great. Zach yeah. McGowan, if you're listening to this, I love you. Let's hang out. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'll send him an email too. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> he listens to the show. He's a, he's a listener. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll uh, talk about Resident Evil 2, and I'll, I'll, I'll like just have you two on that episode, and I can take a week off. That'd be great, yeah, that's honestly. Great. I want to know the consequences of what a galaxy without the Reapers looks like, uh, because I think the destroy in- ending is canon. I'm sorry, we're talking about Master Greek. I think the destroy ending is canon. That's my personal canonical ending, because I think that's the only ending in which the Reapers don't win. Because, as we've discussed, I ascribe to indoctrination theory. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. They really, I really think they have to like crash land on a planet that like the galaxy hasn't discovered yet or like go through some weird Mass Effect wormhole. Like maybe they land on this planet, they get off the planet, they go through a Mass Effect relay and that Mass Effect relay is damaged or exploded or something and sends them either far into the future mm-hmm. in the same galaxy or into the past in the same galaxy. And I think that would be supremely interesting. Right. I appreciate your take on that. Like I said, I'm not talking about Mass Effect 3 right now, but like you are allowed to. So I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to how they handle a game where a decision is, you know, it is not a great decision branch and it, they kind of shot themselves in the foot riding around that. So I'm interested mm-hmm. to see how they uh, put the put the bone back in place. 
Yeah, and I think the only way to do that is to canonize one of the endings, and I think the only ending worth canonizing is destroy. So yeah, synthesis is too eugenicsy for me, and then control mm-hmm. is I don't even have. I mean, for me, I think it, I think there is a certain poetic certain poetic beauty in the a in the dark matter theory, which kind of leads to the control theory, like like the whole the whole status of like the reapers are a necessary evil of the galaxy. And I don't agree with that moralistically, but I think it would be an interesting storytelling choice to either commit to that because the dark matter theory is that society and civilization and technology growth in the Milky Way galaxy is a, creates this like store of dark, dark matter that will destroy the galaxy if it is left unchecked. So the galaxy can never, ever develop like linearly. It has to develop staircase E because Otherwise, if you don't manage the dark matter of the universe, it will destroy everything past this galaxy and beyond. And that's why the Reapers were put in place. And that's why that's why the thing operates the way it does is because it gives people the chance for life and technology and and kind of prolongs the inevitable in the hopes that eventually somebody will figure out how to stop the dark matter. That I that was the original ending I believed, and and that was what was supposed to that was what Hastrum seeded. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, choices were made in the development of the game that shall not be named, and instead we're left with this like weird thing where it's like I don't know, but you can figure it out from here. Yeah, the way that a uh, video game development works is like they put most of their resources into developing the first two thirds because more people start video games and finish them. That's just a mathematical truth. Mm-hmm. All these resources going into the beginning of the game where they want what the reviewers are going to play and what general audience is going to play. They're going to put all their you know, money into that and then the ending is going to... But like in a game series like this, that is suicide. But also the reason that I think that Destroy is going to be the canonical ending is because it's the only ending in which if you have a high enough military war asset score um, that you see proof of Shepard surviving. Oh, that's true. Kiefer, give me your live action series thoughts. Sure. So let's assume that things are moving forward with the live action series and it has to be live action and it has to be at Amazon. It's not going to be great. Not very reassured by what they're doing over there with the Lord of the Rings stuff. But on one hand, it is messy to take a show, take a property that is designed around interactivity, like video games are. You're doing something that has like your identity put on it, like you said, the revenification of media. Revan mm-hmm. isn't a person. You are Revan. You mm-hmm. are designing this character, and it's your decisions informing the plot of the story to an extent. Mm-hmm. the big story beats play out how they are and you are deciding how you're going to react to them. Spin them, but yeah. Ultimately, like, the appeal of the series is that you feel like you are immersing yourself in an RPG. A TV series cannot realize that. So I am against the idea of it, or if you are going to do it, make it lore supplements in a way that it is so disconnected from the main narrative that it is, like you said, like the arcane nature of things where it's mm-hmm. kind of like, this is in the world, but it's not like you need the play the games to get it right yeah that's that's a good compromise with it there are good video game adaptation shows like you said you have arcane which is critically acclaimed i like the netflix castlevania series but again that is so far removed from what castlevania is i don't it's such a good tv show it's it's, so good on its own merit i love it so much it's a damn good tv show i love the voice acting i like how everyone is like talking in a sultry whisper the entire show (laughs) (laughs) 
it's like one of those like things is like i'm not sure if this is like objectively good but i love it it's yeah. asmr with blood sex and i'm violence. here to say i'm here to take a strong stance that it is objectively good and it is objectively sexy on every on every sense possible it is any resource that utilizes richard armitage correctly is a-okay in my book because i've been Absolutely. rooting for him since the hobbit movies because he's the hobbit movies suck but he's a great actor Mm-hmm. He's great as Francis Dollarhide in Hannibal. He yes. is terrific in Castlevania as just like the most tired man in the world. <laughs> so yeah, get out there, Richard Armitage. Maybe you'll get a role in like Mass Effect somehow. And so That'd yeah, be great. on yeah. one hand, it is a betrayal of the interactive medium of video games to mm-hmm. try and make it into a non-interactive product that is, it, it's problematic. But on the other hand, we could get Timothy Oliphant to play Garrus Vakarian. <laughs> There's a non-zero chance of that happening. Yes, that's true. That's if you, so I, true. If I want okay. someone to play the ultimate sexy cop, like, you know, Timothy Oliphant's on the table. He's there. your man. Yeah. yeah. So here's the thing that I think is important. And it's that the good video game adaptations don't try to recreate the magic of the video game. They try right. to rebuild and and like influence the world so i think the best video game adaptations are those tertiary stories that that fill out and like really a i think they should introduce non-video game player audiences to the world Mm -hmm. and b i think they should you know keep keep the fans of the property uh not necessarily happy but give them something that they would not have had otherwise like Arcane, for example, is a prequel to League of Legends, which does not actually have a plot of any sort. The right. only plot that you get is from when you play characters on the same team and they have voice lines and interact with each other. Um, and then there, there are even there are seasonal events that happen in which characters talk to each other, or you might do like a visual novel and have have them that are, that is not canon, but you see the ways that the characters interact. Or whenever a character is introduced or whenever an event is introduced, they'll make a cinematic or they'll write a short story or they'll do a comic. And that's how you get the the world and the story of the universe. And the thing that Arcane does is that it, it backs it up to before the events of League of Legends and it shows you the development of these characters. Okay. And so that's what I want. I honestly think that a First Contact War Mass Effect TV show would be really fucking cool for yeah. that exact reason. Yeah, I mean, like you see how that Halo... TV series is just flailing around right now and nobody yes. seems to like it. I haven't seen, I always see positive opinions of some things. I made the Cowboy Bebop video and there were still positive opinions of those that I've seen from notable people. I haven't seen anyone really try and go to bat for the Halo series. It's I've seen fans quit it after two episodes. I have not watched it yet. I'm a huge Pablo Schreiber fan. I love him so much. I think he's the best. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about his Master Chief, but I'm sure that he will give it his actorly all However, um, I think that the, the issue with the Halo series, having not seen it, is not the acting. It might not even be the writing. I think it might have just been the concept. The concept, absolutely. Like you, like I said, like the Master Chief thing is a power fantasy because he's mm-hmm. a deliberately quiet character that you can assume. He is a product of that s- sensibility. And like it's life. the Boba Fett syndrome, right? Like, yeah. like Tamara Morrison didn't want to be Boba Fett and didn't want to be the main character of his own TV show because he was like, I think Boba Fett should talk less. And having this like, faceless voiceless character is great for video games and terrible for tv shows and storytelling because you need to a be invested in that character b that character needs to have a journey and c you need to have like stakes and you need to root for that character so like the halo trilogy as far or the halo tv show as far as i know didn't really do that and but but i think that if you're if you're 
coming into a world with like a clear timeline, clear events, like galaxy altering events that happen in a clear timeline of these events. Yeah. I think you really need to be able to hit those three and tell a story within that universe that is not the story that the game's already told. It feels cranked out. It looks cheap. And the big thing is like, even by the season finale, they still haven't actually gotten to the Halo yet. So it's oh kind of- Oh my God, you are really? Failing, you are failing on a fundamental narrative level in terms of like- <laughs> Not delivering you, on the name of your TV show, yes. You, you haven't even like delivered on the premise of the name of the show. And Lost, they're lost in the first episode. That's the show like that TV writing used to be a lot simpler in a way that, you know, people dismiss as reductive. But now we're going in the opposite direction where we are padding things out and dragging it out to the point that the premise is secondary to the product. Let's uh, move on and talk about media in a more positive way. So, Maddie, what would you recommend to people who like Mass Effect 2 or mm-hmm. the series in general? Uh, it doesn't have to be a video game. It could be a movie, a TV show, a book, something that you feel connected to that you also think would connect to people who like this kind of game. If you like this kind of game and you have not played Dragon Age, the series, I think you really should. And the reason I say that is not just because it's a fantasy Mass Effect. I think it really like a lot of the things that Mass Effect promises and Mm -hmm. delivers on are things that Dragon Age also delivers on. Every game has a different ensemble of very... Uh, very engaging characters. Each one is its own story. And differently from Mass Effect, each one has a different protagonist. First, you play as the Warden, who is a Grey Warden, which is kind of like a character that gets conscripted into this Night's Watch-esque force of people who travel around and fight demons that come, that are spawning from like various like hell dimensions. And so your character has to manage Uh, what's called a blight, which is like uh, an extinction level event that is Mm -hmm. coming in the next. And that's in one that's in one country in this world. And then the next game is a character that that lives the events of the opening of the first game uh, from a different perspective that flees that country when that blight begins and then starts their own story and their own journey. They're called the champion of Kirkwall, aka Hawk, and they have their own battles to fight in in a separate part of the world in the free cities in the Ferelda Marches. And then the third game is a different character mm-hmm. called the Inquisitor. So the events of the last game require like a meeting of the minds sort of, of like a great council where every like representatives from every country come to this one spot and talk it out because they're like, all right, we've been through like a blight and like several wars and this whole like blood mage business. We got to sit down and talk it out and solve the problem. Something really bad happens at that conference. And your character is the only survivor that that everybody knows of, of that situation. And you're the only one that knows what happened, except for you're an amnesiac. And so you spend the whole game trying to figure out what happened and then trying to stop the person that is behind the event. That takes you to even more countries around the world. And theoretically, in this next game, you will go to a country that you specifically have been kept away from in the past three games. So you get to experience this other world that has been like the the bad guy for good reason mm. of the previous games. And so you get to go into that world and experience that culture. And each society is so developed and so like clearly like clearly built out in this like massive world building experience of these past three games that like you really do feel like it's like mass if Mass Effect happened in like one planet mm-hmm. in one continental mass. Like okay. you, you have a variety of races, their cultural interactions, 
uh, are shaped by periods of massive wild history. And like, there are lots of war crimes. There are lots of atonement (laughs) for those war crimes. There are like actual consequences for, you know, the history of the way the world developed. You get fun characters, you get fun stories, you get really beautiful cinematic moments and it's all Bioware. So you also have a morality, (laughs) you also have a morality factor. You also have this, you know, web of choices that you can make. You also have this like romance map that you can choose on every game. And like Mass Effect, the world states you can import from game to game so that your choices continue to show up and continue to reveal themselves across the series. Anyway, that's my Dragon Age rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, that's that's great. I mean, you answered all the questions that I was coming up with while you were explaining the thing. So you were very yeah. thorough. Thank you on that. Is there yeah. any, anything else that you would recommend, whether it's a video game or not? Probably. I just got to think about it. Um, you made plenty of good recommendations today alone. Like you, you said, like, hey, everyone should watch Arcane. Great. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm going to watch mean, it. Everyone, yeah. everyone should watch Arcane because it's my favorite thing ever of all time ever, and I love it. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not just saying that. I really have sat with my thought process on that. And that's true. Mm-hmm. And I will not back down from it. It's really fucking good. And it won every single Annie that it was nominated for. Nice. For a total of nine, which mm. I think is a new record, which is crazy. The Annie's are the are the Emmys for Netflix or for animated series specifically, right. I should say, um, which is vital. Play Dragon Age. Watch Arcane. I'm trying to think of space things. Uh, watch Stargate. Okay. Watch Battlestar Galactica, like Battlestar Galactica especially has a lot in common with the narrative themes of Mass Effect because Mass Effect drew from and was inspired by it. I hear really good things about Star Trek Strange New Worlds in a way that sounds like it could be very similar, similar in spirit, if not in merit. And yeah, just if you like space stuff, then if you like the genre, then you probably already know what to watch and read and play. So yeah. And this is my show too, so I'm going to give some recommendations as well. Yeah, you, please. Kiefer, yeah. what do you recommend for fans of Mass Effect? I'm happy you asked. So just about any notable action RPG will probably scratch that itch, but Knights of the Old Republic in particular may be the closest. Yes. It's very silly to recommend Star Wars to anybody, but it, it is an important part of video game history, and it is something that is worth playing to see the history of Bioware as a company. So in a lot of ways, it feels like a dry run for Mass Effect, but playing mm-hmm. in the familiar trappings of Star Wars. So you don't need to be super familiar with Star Wars to like Kodor. I think a great thing that it does is that it on-ramps you into the world by making you your own specific character. And that creates a narrative reason to you know explain basic concepts to you, like what the Force is, uh, because you start out, you're just a guy, and then like you're found out to be Force-sensitive, and then you're put through this plot and then like you develop and level up and it, it all makes sense. And the way that that story is weaved into the narrative uh, medium of video games, it, it's just, it's great. It's great. It's great. Jeff kiss um, my friends. It is a story that I believe can only work in video games. I agree. It, it, I understand the impulse with that because it is really good, but it already exists. That story was told in Knights of the old Republic. So that's my soapbox on it. Please play it. Like I said, since it does a great job onboarding you to the world, you don't have to really be familiar with Star Wars to play it because it is so far removed from the era of the films. It's not beholden to any established characters. And even the aesthetics are noticeably different. Like it's very much like that Star Wars, but it's not like... It's not the Star Wars you know. It's not your daddy Star Wars. (laughs) It's like, no, it's like you don't need to know what a TIE fighter or a Death Star is. Like it it creates its own in-universe things that you know, our facsimiles of those things, but it is still distinctly Star Wars. So check it out. I greatly enjoy it. 
on the episode Will and I did on Fallout New Vegas, he recommended The Outer Worlds, and I echo that sentiment here for Mass Effect. Oh, it's so good. It's so fun. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. If you enjoy the relationship building aspect of forging bonds with crewmates while exploring the galaxy and making moral and ethical decisions along the way, this will certainly scratch that itch. And I consider Parvati in that game to be one of the great video game characters. So I love Parvati. She is, like I said, I have a couple of like general issues with the game. No game's perfect, but it is right. very much worth playing. And if you ever see it on sale, please, please check it out. I mean, it's worth supporting Obsidian as a developer. And I hope that the sequel that is being developed is great. I hope that they get more space to iterate on the formula and make this world more distinct. Mm-hmm. And one last recommendation for today. If you enjoy this game about a decorated military hero trying to build relationships, find love, and deal with bureaucracy in the face of an impending suicide mission and omnipresent homoeroticism, might I recommend to you the film Top Gun Maverick now in theaters? <laughs> Look, I know it is military propaganda. I know Tom Cruise is a misanthropic narcissist. I know Miles Teller is one of our least interesting movie stars, but it works. It genuinely I hear really moves. good things. Miles Teller in this movie and things that I would not expect Miles Teller to be able to bring to the table. Like I'm, hear, I'm hearing that he's bringing to the table. So like, I think the problem with Miles Teller, I mean, like I don't like Miles Teller, but like he works in whiplash because he's really playing that character to a T. There just hasn't been a film since that is properly executed on what Miles Teller can bring to the table. And somehow Miles Teller really works here and it's, it's great stuff. I'm not excited to see more of him, but he he's good here. So again, great movie, genuinely moved me. I feel no attachment to the original Top Gun. It's fine, Mm -hmm. but this is great blockbuster cinema. You know, it's just great stuff. I had a popular tweet earlier this week that's like, yeah, Top Gun's propaganda. I'm taking a propaganda at Jennifer Connelly. Uh, Yeah, I saw that. It was really good. (laughs) I stand by that message. Go see the movie, if not for anything else, but do it for her and do it for Glenn Powell, who is also in that movie. And I love him as well. And do it for Val Kilmer. I hear they they give Iceman like a really good moment. Val Kilmer is terrific. Like in another movie, it'd be a cheap movie moment that you'd see in like a Marvel film where they bring back a legacy actor to do a, a soft goodbye. But here, Kilmer's just like a really great performer. He like really knows the body language of a performance and he just realizes it so beautifully here and that vulnerability that he brings and the reality that he is able to give a scene even with the limitations that he now has as a result of his esophageal cancer he is just like great stuff seriously do check out top gun maverick it's terrific absolutely all right so i have a couple more segments left and then we can get out of here let's go all right let's go to the next segment then yeah So this is a segment that I call No Country for Old Games. Mm -hmm. Video game preservation is really important to me. I think that if we want to consider video games an art form, we shouldn't treat them simply as consumable products that can fade into obsolescence and obscurity. So this is the part of the show where we gauge how easily someone can access the game we discussed today and rate its availability on a scale of A to ARG, and ARG being an expression of frustration at how hard it is to access older games, not me advocating for piracy in any way. That's illegal. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. So before we rate Mass Effect 2 on this scale, I have to ask you, Maddie, when you get the urge to replay this game, how do you replay it? Luckily, with the availability of the Legendary Edition, I can just log on to my PC and start playing. But I also do have 
I have Mass Effect Andromeda on my PS4, and I believe it's purchasable on Xbox One. So it's I can actually very easily access this franchise on various consoles. But generally, I'm primarily a PC gamer these days. I'm just going to log onto my computer and start playing it. So Yeah, the beauty of the PC is that it maintains games a lot longer than a lot of console-exclusive games are. Mm-hmm. So as bad of a company EA is on a corporate level, this particular game is the most readily available game we've discussed on the show so far. So mm-hmm. the Legendary Edition, which we've talked about throughout the show, and you mentioned the changes made to it, It's a remaster of the entire trilogy that was released last year for the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC, and it's now available to play on the PC and Xbox Game Pass subscription service. And since the new generation versions of the PlayStation, the PlayStation 5, and the new generation of Xboxes, the Xbox Series X and S, uh, are able to be backwards compatible, uh, you can play these games on current-gen hardware. And you can still play the original Unremastered trilogy on PC as well if you are a purist and want to get the original experience for those games. You can purchase them on Steam. You can play the originals on Game Pass still. And if you find a physical copy of Mass Effect, Mass Effect 2 or Mass Effect 3 on the Xbox 360, the Xbox current generation of consoles can still play those discs because they're backwards compatible to that point. I think we can actually rate this as an A for available. Yeah, absolutely. You don't need to resort to piracy to play this game. Ethically, you have to deal with whether you want to give your money to EA. Otherwise, like you can't say like, oh, I couldn't find this game the way we could for Metal Gear Solid 3. So there's that. I will say, ethically, giving your money to EA for the Legendary Edition will allow EA to be slightly more incentivized to make another Mass Effect game, which I really want to see how they handle the Shepherd of it all. So... Yeah, I do think that the Legendary Edition was like a very low risk way of gauging the continued interest of Mass Effect and seeing what its viability would be like these days. It clearly it sold well and Mm -hmm. the community is still active, which is great considering how a lot of communities that aren't nurtured and supported will die. But this is a garden that hasn't wilted. Right. Which is saying a lot because the game came out 15 years ago. Yeah. The first game came out 15 years ago. And so. this and the trilogy wrapped nine years ago. So mm-hmm. the fact that it's almost a decade since a Shepherd game has come out and there's mm-hmm. still a there's still a fan base for it, that's something. That's yeah, that's not nothing for sure. Yeah. All right. I think that's going to be a wrap on this episode. Maddie, before you go, anything else that you want to promote or talk about? Um, like I said, watch Arcane. I'm <laughs> fully fully on the art. Like any at, at the level of which you think oh, this TV show is good. Like, I should probably watch it. Like, double that. And that's how I feel about Arcane. That's how I want you to feel about Arcane. Triple that. And that's how I feel about Arcane. (laughs) I cannot express how fucking good it is as a story and how much it will ruin your life in the best way. But besides that, watch Keeper's videos and support (laughs) him on YouTube because it's really important to me and I love everything he has to say and I want him to keep saying things. Well, that's very funny to say. Do that, absolutely. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I do cosplay. I do Twitch, but primarily just keep supporting my buddy Kiefer here because I definitely value and admire all of his opinions. That's very sweet. Thank you so much again for being on my show. I'm going to put the links to all your stuff in the description of this episode. Maddie, you are great. I really appreciate you coming on. And this concludes our episode of Select and Start. Yay, this is really fun. I hope you, the listener, had a great time. And if you like this episode, please give it a high rating or a like or whatever it is that you can do on your podcast application. Please give any feedback to the show at Select Pod Start on Twitter 
or you can follow me on Twitter at Danny Vegito and we can you can look at my dumb tweets there. Renegade interrupt. Only five star reviews. Only five star reviews. If you give a negative review, I don't know what to do with that unless I will be- find you and I will punch you. That's what that's what's gonna happen. They can do that. I can't do anything. Um, I've had enough of your disingenuous assertions. And I appreciate my friends backing me up. But if you do have legitimate feedback for the show, and if you see places where it can be better, I am open to hearing it. And I really appreciate any feedback that you have. Give me five stars, though, if, if you can. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Maddie's. All right. I think that's it. I'm Kiefer, and this is my favorite podcast on the Citadel. <laughs> Amazing. Great job. Hi. Editor Kiefer here, uh, the bad boy of the Kiefer's. Host Kiefer forgot to do a part of the show during the initial record like an idiot, so I have to step in and do it. So on the Select and Start Twitter account, I made a post asking people's opinions on Mass Effect 2, and I'm going to read some of my favorite responses. Luke, aka at Luke is Amazing, said, A perfect sequel in every way. It exceeds the original in story, combat, gameplay, and basically everything except the lack of Liara. I agree, Luke. Some people took issue with the way that the RPG elements and some of the combat was streamlined, but I think it was for the best. The gunplay and powers are better in 2, and the RPG mechanics of Mass Effect 1 were better in theory than in execution. This was the better route for the series. At Spooky Candle said, pretty funny how they responded to the criticism of the first game, quote, the inventory system is wonky, the car drives weird, the side quest planets being randomly generated is bad, end quote. Solution? Throw all that shit out. Seems a little overboard, but okay. Overboard's one way of looking at it, and I agree it's funny. Uh, but I see it as trimming the fat. Ideally, you'd want to refine the clunkier aspects of something, but most features were extraneous. I don't really think we lost much cutting them out. Mass Effect 2 feels like a wildly different game, but it's more focused. They threw a lot of shit away, but it was for the best. Liz, aka at Bastulashan420, said, It's great. Garrus, DM me. Can it wait for a bit? I'm in the middle of some calibrations. At The Lemon Father said, The greatest sequel in all of gaming. It's a great sequel. I agree it's a great sequel. Trey, aka at Internet Trey, said, I don't know if I'd like to ever play it again, but it whips ass at a game modeled Badlands era Martin Sheen to be the elusive man. Yeah, I usually have problems with Hollywood actors in video games because it usually feels like stunt casting, and their performance is usually worse than that of a professional voice actor. But Martin Sheen works surprisingly well here. I think it's hilarious to use his likeness, though, while making him play a complete bastard man. You didn't have to make it his likeness, but you did. And I appreciate it. it, it it's cool. All right. I'm about to end the show for real this time, but one more thing. If you're interested in supporting the show directly, you can actually subscribe to my Patreon account I just set up. Here are the relevant perks for Select and Start specifically. If you subscribe, no matter how much you contribute, you get episodes at least a day earlier. You also get extended episodes. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, extended episodes, Kiefer, these episodes are already long as hell. There's a lot of stuff I cut out, and I feel bad about it because a lot of it I think is good, but I want to be considerate of people's time making an episode. And I want to give an option for people who want to listen to more. And I also want to be respectful of my guests who are super thoughtful and super cool and super interesting. So from this episode moving forward, I'm going to include extended episodes where possible. So there's actually a longer version of this episode readily available on Patreon. That's all I can guarantee for now. And I assure you, if there's any additional bonus content non-subscribers are missing out on, I will annoy you about it on the main feed. 
I currently don't have any sponsors, so your support literally pays for the show. The hosting fees, my Zencaster subscription, and so on. This is a show I make in my free time when I'm not working a full-time job, and I can't thank you enough for supporting me. If you have any additional questions on the Patreon, please go and see for yourself on the page. I posted a link to the Patreon in the description of this episode. It's on the main Twitter account. It's patreon.com slash Corner. Seriously, thank you so much for helping the show in any way. Just by listening, you're awesome. If you contribute to the show's Patreon in any way, you're even cooler. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Seriously, thank you. All right. I think that's it. Have a great day. I am the very model of a scientist Salarian. I've studied species Turian, Asari, and Batarian. I'm quite good at genetics as a subset of biology because I am an expert, which I know is a tautology. We're bang, okay?